blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Go, go. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. All right. Welcome, Coco Cruisers, to episode number 48 of the Coco Crew Podcast. This is the first episode of our fifth year. Hooray! Yahoo! Woohoo! <laughs> Coco New Year. Exactly. Well, we've just had uh, uh, Coco Fest, so this is the beginning of our Coco New Year, as we proclaimed several years ago. <laughs> and so we're here, we're excited, we're having fun. Let's get on with it, then. <laughs> Let's see. Then now we here we are. With Coco Fest was last month, so on the next Coco Fest is uh, roughly eleven months away. Uh, we haven't quite nailed down a date yet. There is some work feverishly happening uh, on uh, evaluating uh, new venues or, and uh, and or the old venue. So we haven't even quite decided on the venue yet, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, work is underway, scheduling the, the 29th annual last Chicago Coco Fest. Uh, should be happening in uh, 2020, the uh, 40th anniversary year of the Tandy Color Computer. Very exciting stuff. Uh, along with that, the Tandy Assembly is now approximately four months away. Everyone's looking forward to that. I'm starting to see people uh, announcing that they've uh, made their reservations. Uh, so I guess that's open at the hotel already. That's uh, going to be the next big event in the Coco and Tandy world. Uh, everyone excited about that? I was Mike, one of those yes, that uh, made reservations actually early, did it a few weeks back. Cool. Awesome. Very excited. That's great. What about projects? Anybody working on a project now? Or are we all uh, take the, the, the uh, head first slide uh, into Coco Fest and uh, still dusting ourselves off? <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely dusting off. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Great event. <laughs> yeah, definitely a cool event. I, I don't have anything really active to report at this point. I'm still kind of reconnoitering for uh, trying to find something to get serious about again. Uh, I may dust off my uh, basic compiler uh, project. I know uh, Ron will be excited if I ever get that back underway. I am. I am looking forward to that. <laughs> As am I. Um, anyone else? Anyone got anything going they want to talk about or uh, – we're going to just uh, recharge for another month. Recharge. <laughs> all right. How about uh, any acquisitions? It's, uh, well, I'm sure we all have something we probably picked up at, at Coco Fest, but any other acquisitions or anything you want to talk about from Coco Fest? Uh? Well, I uh, picked up a new version of Farfall. <laughs> a new version of Farfall, yeah. I, I sold, um, I think, 16 of those cartridges, uh, which isn't bad. I've got a, f- a few more if anybody wants to reach out uh, via email um, and uh, ask about it. I'll uh, do take PayPal and charge a reasonable shipping uh, for a USPS priority. <laughs> um, <laughs> just a little plug there. Let's see, I picked up something. What was it? Uh, My Rose CD. Oh, yeah, Myro CD. That was pretty cool. <laughs> and likewise, uh, I, I sold about 16 copies as well. So, uh, 
You got some more of those out for people I, that want? I sure do. So same same deal. I take PayPal. Just reach out if you're interested in it, in the uh, Coco Fest Adventure game and the uh, commercials on the CD. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I did pick up a copy of uh, an original discette for Barbarian Quest, I think is what it's called, from uh, Ron Delvaux. He posted uh, up on Facebook, said, has anybody tried this for my buddy or whatever? And I said, uh, no, but how much do you want for your discette? <laughs> 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 so we arranged a little trade, so very exciting there. Always on the hunt for original Cocoa software for anybody who's got some and needs some extra cash. <laughs> I'll help feed your uh, your uh, your crack habit or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyone else? Anybody else got anything exciting to start off? Or I picked up a very clean Coco Three at Coco Fest. Was oh, very yeah? happy to get that. Yes, yes. Cool. Um, very exciting. Always good to have some new equipment or new to you equipment. I've got a, one of those uh, Coco Threes and still essentially new in a box somewhere. I should uh, well, I should hoard it and sell it at the best possible time. But <laughs> <laughs> that's my fourth backup or something. So uh, probably should keep that just in case, you know. Can't forget. Uh, I'm sure we all got uh, Triad Plus. Oh yeah. Got your two yeah, mate yeah. Coco Three yet? <laughs> Actually, I was uh, at the table next to Mark, and everybody was so busy, I actually didn't get one. <laughs> I know where to find him. And <laughs> people right. were so busy at the fest this year, they didn't even get around to see all the tables. I I, I was one of them. I, I wish I could have uh, gotten around a little bit more. It's amazing. You know, Ron, I barely saw you at the fest. I know you're there, but <laughs> it's like, gosh, we're so busy. I didn't even get to ha- hang out. I know. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people. It's a good fest. It was uh, I think we're going with the official number of 122 uh, attendees. I think someone said the previous year was 118, so a little bit better than last year, or about the same at least. I don't know, no worse. <laughs> uh, definitely had a a, a a more crowded feel uh, in a good way. Coco Fest is looking pretty healthy. Definitely exciting. All right, well that's probably a good introduction. Why don't we take a little break and then we'll be back with. Some announcements. It's time again. It's time to learn. It's time to connect. People from across the globe will travel to one place to celebrate. It's time to assemble. Tandy Assembly is North America's only vintage computer show dedicated exclusively to all makes and models of Tandy and Radio Shack computers. In our third year, we're happy to be adding a new offering for Friday afternoon, Tandy Tech Track. These special classes are designed to take you even deeper into your Tandy computer. And dinner is included. See our webpage for details and pricing. Tandy Assembly is held in Springfield, Ohio, just 30 minutes from Dayton International Airport. Event and hotel information are available at our website, tandyassembly.com. Children 12 and under are free. And as always, you can register and pay online. So join us on September 27th, 28th, and 29th in Springfield, Ohio for Tandy Assembly. Some assembly is required. Assembly. All right, now we're back with some announcements. Uh, you are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter as at Coco Crew Podcast. That's C O C O C R E W P O D C A S T. If you are prone to sending tweets, uh, feel free to tweet at us and we may tweet back. 
Uh, let's see. We are also available uh, on Facebook. We have a group called The Space Coco Space Crew Space Podcast because we like to mix it up. If you are in the Book of Faces, do come out and check out our group. And I um, always try, if I have a little bit of news, especially related to the podcast, I always try to let my uh, Coco Crew Podcast peeps in uh, on the news first. Um, so it may get you news a little bit quicker um, than just the regular Coco groups. Don't tell everybody else. It's a secret. <laughs> uh, let's see. We are a podcast, so we are, of course, available on iTunes and also through Google Play, as well as a number of other podcast aggregation sites that tend to pull from uh, one or the other of those. Um, we're not available everywhere. If there is a podcast aggravator, uh, aggravator, <laughs> a podcast <laughs> aggregator, uh, that uh, you've used and uh, don't find us on, then let me know. I can uh, probably get us listed. We are also available for streaming uh, through Stitcher and uh, on TuneIn. So if you have a smart speaker in your home, uh, you can f- find us uh, by asking Alexa to play the Coco Crew podcast. <laughs> for the past several uh, months, uh, we have also been available as video episodes on YouTube. Not a lot of uh, exhilarating video content there. We basically run the uh, podcast audio uh, through a, a little conversion that puts up pictures of our logo and uh, alternating with uh, pictures of the show notes. But, you know, if you um, if you only have a YouTube client or if you somehow prefer using YouTube um, for your podcast listening, feel free to check us out there. Uh, let's see, the video episodes are also supposed to be able to be available on the Kogo TV channel on Roku, which is sponsored by Roger Taylor. Not sure if we're totally up to date there at the moment, but uh, if uh, if you're not up to episode 48 or 47 at least, um, feel free to poke Roger and ask him to update. <laughs> let's see, we are a member of the Throwback Network. This is a um, a collection of retro-themed podcasts. After you've listened to the Coco Group podcast, if you are looking for more retro-themed podcasts to take up some of your time, then feel free to check out the Throwback Network. Similarly, we are listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This is also a listing of, of retro-themed podcasts, although in this case the theme is uh, more along the lines of uh, retro technology and games. Uh, so uh, gaming consoles and home computers and that stuff, such things from the 80s and maybe the 90s, maybe the 70s, somewhere around there. Anyway, so again, when you're done listening to the Coco Crew podcast and maybe any other Coco themed podcast that you're uh, <laughs> aware of, uh, then do feel free to check out the Game by Game podcast information hub. Audio for the Coco Crew podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you have a need to host uh, audio content on the internet, uh, then we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears, where you will get your audio on your terms. If you'd like to reach out to the members of the Kokoro podcast, we have some email addresses available. Uh, to reach all of the hosts, we have the, uh, three different addresses set up. You can use any of them equally, just uh, whichever one you can remember. We have show, S-H-O-W, at cococrew.org. That's C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. We also have podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at cococrew.org, and feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at cococrew.org. 
If you'd like to reach one of the hosts individually through email, then I am available as John, J-O-H-N, at CocoCrew.org. And, of course, we have Neil, N-E-I-L, or we have Mike, M-I-K-E, Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, or Ron, R-O-N, all at CocoCrew.org. So if you want to reach out and contact <laughs> any of us individually, there we go. That is our normal stag announcements, and here we'd uh, like to continue with the uh, announcements of events in the real world that we think our listeners might be interested in attending. So coming up in the, the 1st of June, 2019, we have, um, I'd say, the 5th, uh, Encontro Club of Color Rio. Uh, this is a Coco Clone-themed gathering in Rio de Janeiro. If you happen to be uh, in uh, that part of the world, the Southern Hemisphere, it's probably a good excuse to go if you're not already there. <laughs> um uh, go and hang out with our Brazilian friends and uh, have a good time and uh, report back, send us lots of pictures. In uh, the Atlanta area, uh, July 12th through the 14th of 2019, uh, we have the Southern Fried Game Room Expo. The Southern Fried Game Room Expo features more than 250 arcade pinball and console machines, tabletop, RPG, wrestling, music, tournaments, a vendor expo, exciting programs, and guest speakers, film festival, and so much more. Game all re- all weekend at Southern Fried Game Room Expo 2019. That's held at the Renaissance Atlanta Waverly Hotel and Convention Center. Very exciting. That comes recommended by some of our hosts. July 15th through the 21st, 2019, we have, of course, Kansas Fest. This is the Apple II uh, summer camp event where uh, attendees go and actually live in the dorms at Rockhurst University for uh, essentially a week of Retro goodness. It is an Apple II themed event. There won't be a lot of cocoa, if any. But, you know, if uh, if you like the Apple II, uh, it's a, a great event to go to. Coming up, August 3rd and 4th of 2019, we have VCF West. This is a vintage computer festival. Um, this will be held at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Neil, you still planning to go to this one? No, I wish. I got a scheduling conflict. It came close, but uh, I won't be able to make oh, it this no. year. Sorry about that. Good time to get some sun on that uh, uh, lovely white Canadian skin of yours, too. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, that's August 3rd and 4th, 2019. Coming up uh, September 14th and 15th, 2019, we have VCF Midwest. Let's see, this will be in the Chicago area. The website still says it's an undisclosed location. Yeah. Uh, should be a cool event. It's a pretty balanced event uh, when it comes as within the micro, the world of microcomputers. There, there's a lot of different kinds of stuff that shows up there, even Cosmic Elf and, uh, of course, plenty of Commodore and, and uh, Apple and whatever else. Um, so, no, a pretty cool event. If you're in the Chicago area or you can get there without much trouble, then uh, I would recommend it, except for the fact and if you're limited to, uh, to travel, the two weeks later, September 28th to 29th, we of course have Candy Assembly. Woohoo! Woohoo! I'm going to both. Yes, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is a pretty cool event. Uh, I hear that this uh, year on Friday, they're planning uh, some special presentations on Friday. Uh, yes, they're going to be offering two different price entries. There'll be an extra charge for the Friday technical chats, but that'll include a meal on about Friday evening for those attendees and then our, our normal Saturday and uh, Sunday event. So cool. we're excited about it. 
Very exciting. So if you are a Tandy person, um, if you're a Cocoa person that can't make it a whole year <laughs> to Cocoa Fest, <laughs> and, uh, if you're a Tandy person, uh, if you're a Z80 or other Tandy person, uh, this is your big event. Do your best to make it out there. I'm, uh, I'm not sure what the uh, moral imperative uh, radius is for this event, but... <laughs> <laughs> Same same as Coco Fest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, in uh, in Ohio. It's uh, they call it the Midwest. It's um, not too far from from lots of stuff. Um, so uh, do your best, make it out there. All right, our final announced event. Uh, let's see for October eighteenth to twentieth of twenty nineteen. Uh, we're talking about the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. Um, tickets are now on sale. PRG is expanding in 2019, adding an additional 30,000 square feet of convention space, bringing the total footage of the expo to 150,000 square feet. Holy cow. (laughs) That's Um, amazing. Our arcade has been bursting at the scene, so we'll be moving some of our tournament qualifiers and free play games to the lower meeting areas, bringing up more space in the retrocade for a larger tournament final stage, guest seating, and more arcade and pinball games. (laughs) Wow. If you are in or near the Pacific Northwest, uh, then do um, find yourself a way to check out the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. It uh, sounds like an amazing event. Well, I think that concludes our announcements for this month. So why don't we take a, another little break, and then we'll be back with some news. Looking for the best service, best selection, and best prices for your color computer shopping needs? Coco Pro. At Coco Pro, we bring you the best value for your Coco shopping dollar. We carry a wide variety of new hardware products at prices too low to advertise. Gently used hardware products with a full 30-day warranty, as well as something you won't find anywhere else. Gently used software at incredible savings from 30 to 80% off retail value. Easy on your wallet, easy on the convenience. Our inventory changes daily and contains at least 120 of your favorite Coco software titles at all times. All are legitimate copies with full documentation. There's only one place for the best service, the best selection, and the best prices. Coco Pro. Great moments in history. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Mr. Bell, it worked. I heard every word. Duh, you were supposed to. I called you in here because I just received the newest Radio Shack flyer in today's mail. Look for your Radio Shack flyer in this week's mail. Save 25 to 50% on select items throughout the store. Mr. Bell, where are you going? Why, to Radio Shack, of course, for big savings. What about the telephone? If anyone calls, take a message. Radio Shack, America's technology store. All right, welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Now it's time for some news. Let's see our first news item. This comes from um, M. David Johnson, or just David Johnson, I guess, but he puts the M in his name on his email. He uh, announces on the Color Computer Multimedia web, or not website, email list. Says, uh, today I put together all the CF83 fourth system files. CF is color 483, is that right? Anyway, CF83 fourth system oh. files, development files, and the number reverse puzzle into one CF83.zip package. For those who might want to download the whole thing at once, he has a link. And then uh, he says, I also combined all the King James Version Bible files into one KJV.zip package. That's harder to say than it looks, KJV. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this uh, I think we may have mentioned at one point that somebody had done uh, uh, the, the King James Version uh, Bible text uh, back in the day, and so this is the fellow who did that. And he's uh, making them available for download, and uh, 
Rumor has it we may hear more from uh, Mr. Johnson on a, on a later episode of this podcast, uh, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Uh, and David, actually, he was at Cocoa Fest, a very nice fellow. Talked to him a little bit. A little soft-spoken, but uh, definitely a very nice fellow. Obviously a fan of Fourth. We mentioned Fourth a lot on this uh, podcast. It's uh, definitely a, a cool language, a cool retro-oriented language uh, to, to learn if you're uh, looking to extend your mind in that sort of fashion. So uh, you may want to check out his package and uh, see what's available. All right, the next link we have comes, um, it's actually a link uh, from uh, Mr. Lumen Day at Hackaday. Full motion video and 3D graphics makes this Genesis demo pop. And by Genesis, they, of course, mean the, the Sega Genesis in the United States or Sega Mega Drive, as it was called in other parts of the world. And it is, you know, it's just a demo. It literally is a demo in the, in the sense of, you know, like the uh, Amiga-style demos from the 90s or, or, you know, the kind of work that uh, Simon Jonasson has been doing for the, you know, Coco trying to build a demo scene. And like I said, it's not the Coco. It's um, this is the Sega Genesis. Um, Graphics-wise, it is not too far different from the Coco 3 in some ways. I could be uh, a little off with that, but uh, <laughs> feel happy to, to have you argue with me in, in the feedback if you've got other opinions there. Um, what I thought was interesting about this, um, a just because it's a little bit inspirational to see any kind of demo work. But there's also a, um, they've laid their secrets bare in a technical document. There's a link to a Google Doc that um, describes, uh, it says it's describing in explicit detail how it's all achieved. And so it can be cool to read um, that kind of stuff just to kind of get your mind around some of the kind of trickery bit level stuff or whatever. It doesn't always 100% apply between machines, but quite often the techniques have analogous techniques or other can you know, they have twins or, or cousins, or shall we say, on different systems. So it might be worth a look if you want to figure out how to do some weird or cool stuff um, with graphics on 8-bit system. well, older systems. <laughs> Genesis is more of a, I guess, a 16-bit system. But still, I think there'll probably be there something there that might be interesting to learn. Whether or not it totally applies to Coco, well, that's up to you. So moving along, we have another Hackaday link. This is from a Harry Scharf Glass is the author. Tuckoplexing, <laughs> uh, a new Charlieplex for buttons and switches. For those that are kind of in the sort of the maker mindset or, you know, want to build things, uh, electronic things, you may be familiar with the term Charlieplexing, which is a, a way to kind of get um, more physical outputs out of a set of wires, <laughs> but if you wire them correctly, whereas you normally would wire something where you have um, an output uh, to, to everything that then would all have a shared ground, for example, you basically take some of your outputs and, and you sometimes use them as positive voltages and sometimes use them as grounds, and uh, with the proper kind of wiring, you can um, get more lights lit up than you have actual physical outputs. <laughs> And so with that mangled description, um, this tuckoplexing is kind of an extended version of that. It's named after the, the inventor's cat. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how, anyway, uh, if you, uh, at least to the uh, level of electronics knowledge that you can read schematics, um, you might be able to take a look at the schematic and figure out what they're doing there. Um, like I said, it's kind of like Charlie Plexing. 
depending on how things are set up, the, the circuit effectively changes direction on you. So it may be a cool way to uh, to extend the outputs or the capabilities of a piece of hardware if you're trying to, to light some lights or detect some switch closings or that sort of thing. Let's see, moving on, we have a, a, a link from the Color Computer Facebook group uh, posted by Brendan Donahue. Does I've designed and can 3D print cases to protect your Coco VGA button board. And so for those who have a Coco VGA product, probably aware that it includes a, um, well, a button board <laughs> that uh, is designed to be mounted uh, possibly by drilling a few holes in your case or otherwise extending some wires through your case and uh, providing access to some buttons for, I guess that's how you enable like the artifact settings or, or some people don't want to drill holes in their cases. I think that's understandable. You probably also don't want a bare sugar board that's plugged into your cocoa. It'll just be hanging loose on the outside of your cocoa. <laughs> so this is your perfect compromise, a piece of plastic built directly for that little circuit board to keep it safe. So if you are already a Cocoa VGA customer or potentially uh, about to become a Cocoa VGA customer, then you may want to contact Brendan and extend your order with this uh Cute little item. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a great little box. I picked one up at uh, Coco Fest, and uh, cool. he's, he's got a 3D printer that uh, does a really amazing job. The other cool thing is he offers, like, 12 different colors. <laughs> yeah, there's some different colors. That's cool. Yeah, they're really cool looking. I, I picked one up as well. Nice product. Cool. Uh, so moving on. Okay, now I've got a couple of YouTube videos. Uh, one from a Mr. Travis Highrise. I have no idea. Well, that, that's probably not a real name, but it could be. Who knows? Um, anyway, so AGDX adding one bit music to the menu. So I think AGDX is some sort of interface program to to ease using AGD. AGD, of course, is the arcade game designer utility that is designed for creating well arcade games for the spe the ZX Spectrum. And that uh, Parasurat and uh, and friends have uh, been uh, putting a lot of effort in uh, recent months into uh, being able to retarget those games around the Coco or Dragon. So this is a, an extension to being able to add some music to your AGD games, which I guess they had some support for using the AY sound chip that is somewhat available depending on how hard you want to work for it. <laughs> um, but uh, if you can do the one-bit beeper-style music, well, that's definitely available on the Coco. So maybe this is a, a, a way to get some one-bit sound games designed with AGD over to the Coco as well. I don't know. Your mileage may, work, may vary. I may be completely wrong. It may take more work than it's worth. <laughs> that's all for you to figure out. But it'll look cool to me. So enjoy. This one uh, <laughs> from uh, someone who calls himself Python Programmer. Probably not his real name. Uh, also uh, at YouTube, he's got a video. It sounds a little provocative in some ways. Don't says don't learn to program in 2019, which kind of would go against some of the grain. You see a lot of videos saying, "Oh yeah, learn to code this year is great. Whatever, everybody should learn how to code. Whatever." Um, and in fact, this guy is not really telling you not to learn how to code. But what he's telling you is, you should instead of focusing on learning how to code in a specific language or whatever that you should learn to focus on problem solving and kind of let the um, the coding kind of fall out as a an afterthought almost of, from doing your problem solving. 
And so it's probably, I, I included it, I thought it was a, a good perspective to have. If you are trying to learn how to do program in a certain language or whatever, great that you're using a certain language, trying to figure out the syntax and such, but it's a pretty drawball problem to just try to figure out how to learn just a language if you're not doing anything with it. And so you, you need to kind of pick a project and, and actually work on solving problems with your language, and that's how you end up learning it. I think that's the point he's trying to make. So check out his video, see if you agree. <laughs> and I hope you enjoy it. All right, the next item is This New Lego Kit Will Help Teach Kids the Basics of Programming by Rosalie Chan and Business Insider. This appears to be an article about a new kit that's coming out by Lego that uses robots. It's called Spike Prime. It's a robotics kit to teach middle school students how to code, and it looks like it's available for pre-order for $330. So that's kind of cool looking. And they, they, of course, have done a couple of variations on this before, uh, generally to high acclaim. But um, like I say, all the, the older ones have now, well, they're older now. <laughs> and so it's good that they're kind of refreshing the product line. Well, it kind of goes back to your previous news item, right? Don't learn to program, don't learn to code. Here we go, learn to code with robots. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the next item is from a friend of the show, Jim Gary. Called Flycatch, aka Frog. This is a YouTube video of Jim's work. I'm presuming this is an MC10. Looks like a frog, a profile of a frog sticking his tongue out and catching flies. <laughs> and uh, I love the ominous music in the background. <laughs> yeah, Jim never disappoints, right? <laughs> no, nope, never does. Yeah, cool little game. Pretty cool. I think there's a similar game available for. Um, is a homebrew for the Atari Jaguar and maybe some other systems. But, you know, like I say, catching flies is pretty cool. I now have a poker program in Basic 09, text only, heavily inspired by what I believe is Jim Gary's port of a color basic poker program to Basic 09. This is by my longtime friend and former colleague at Microware, James Jones. So it looks like James has written a Basic 09 program, which James, of course, knows Basic 09, has been using it a long time. It says here that he did not uh, do any graphics yet, but he has, it looks like he has the basics of the program working and also learned how to play poker to boot. Good job, yep. James. Uh, James seems to occasionally uh, try to turn a crank on, uh, or beat the drum maybe is the right term, on uh, reminding people about Basic 09 or advocating for it and uh that's probably kind of what this is here. I thought we'd help him out. <laughs> so, uh, very cool. Yep. Since 1994, Cloud9 has been making cool stuff for your color computer. Like the Cloud9 Mini Flash, a flash cartridge for your color computer or Dragon. The Mini Flash gives you a total of four 16K banks of flash memory. You can easily flash ROM images into any of the four 16K banks. Store your favorite DOS ROMs and game packs on the Mini Flash. And the Mini Flash is perfect for prototyping your own ROMs without the need for an EEPROM burner. The Mini Flash comes with flash programming software and test utilities. It's preloaded with HDB DOS for DriveWire and two games from Retro Tinker, Coco Dooku, and Follow Coco. So you can use the Mini Flash immediately. The Cloud9 Mini Flash works on all color computer and Dragon models and is housed in a high quality injection molded cartridge case. The Mini Flash. Only from Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. 
Were your taxes a mess last year? Do you look at your bank balance and wonder where all the money went? Then you need Coco Accountant 2. This home and small business accounting program is all you need to answer the three big questions about your money. Where did it come from? Where did it go? And what can I deduct from my taxes? Spend a few minutes with your canceled checks, credit cards, receipts, and payroll stubs. The 32K tape version stores 450 entries in a single file, 500 for disk. The 64K version stores 900 entries on tape or disk. Our happy customers say this is the most useful program they own, and you'll agree. Only $34.95, tape or disk. Coco Accountant 2 from Federal Hill Software. Fine products for the Color Computer, Dragon, and MC10. Next one is a YouTube video that I have not watched yet called Let There Be Lies. Quake's Source Code Sorcery by Chomp Chomp. <laughs> yeah, so you should check it out. Interesting video. It's a, a woman who uh, I, I take it from watching that she's involved in the, the game programming industry of some sort. But so she's looking at the, the source code to Quake, you know, from, from id Software from, you know, 20 years ago now. It's, <laughs> and it's a funny little piece of the code. So they're doing, it's, it has to do with um, lighting, I guess, or... or Dating, I guess. I don't know. So I guess there's an important operation in figuring out how to light a room graphically that involves an operation that's uh, an inverse square root, so like one over the square root of something. And so they're doing some, they've got an algorithm where they're doing some weird math trying to speed that up because otherwise you'd be doing a lot of you know, divisions and Newton's method or whatever to, to calculate uh, the actual square roots. You can do some approximations or whatever. They're doing some bit level stuff, and then they basically just add or subtract. I forget now, but there's just a random number that's like five, seven, three, nine, two, four, four, or whatever the number is. But they just throw in that one number, and it's and it gives them uh, an approximation that's good enough to use. <laughs> And uh, there's even a, a comment in the equivalent in the original code that's you know WTF, but it's, I think it's not even WTF, right? But yeah, um, <laughs> it's like so it's just magic, right? I don't know. I'm sure there's some kind of somebody somewhere can probably explain it, but I mean, is you're at the the intersection of bitwise encoding of floating point numbers and magic math. <laughs> to, for a very specific operation, but it, I just thought it was kind of neat to show the kind of weird stuff that sometimes finds its way into um, old games in particular, or any kind of high-performance software as a shortcut. It seems to work certainly well enough. Uh, I, I don't think anybody really complained about Quake not being, you know, shaded enough or whatever, right? <laughs> it reminds me of uh, at the Cocoa Fest, Stephen Hirsch's talk about Speed Racer. And the tricks yeah. he had to do to employ the uh, the math to avoid the multiple or the division, uh, yep, same kind of thing. Cool. Yeah, exactly that sort of thing. Uh, just uh, uh, on crack. <laughs> 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 yeah, twenty years later. The next news item is happy to send a Philharmonic Twelve, my Symphony Twelve replica, to someone with O nine ASM skills who can write some test assembly utils to test the unit. I'm reading that verbatim, by the way. Looks yeah, like it's quoted. by Jim Brain on yeah. Facebook page uh, regarding his cord, his cord uh, 
the Symphony 12 or the Philharmonic 12, I should say. That's a replica yeah. of Symphony 12. No software, yeah, so, just hardware. Oh, right. So, yeah, he cloned this, this piece of software that's somewhat esoteric. Uh, some of you guys were aware of it, I know, but I was not even aware of this piece of hardware from the past. It's uh, basically like, what, four of those AY3 8910 or 8912 um, down chips on one card. Right. I'm sure yeah, it can produce wonderful chip tunes, but anyway, he reverse engineered or or, or maybe reduced it from schematics or whatever, but then couldn't find software to run it. Uh, if you are interested in working with such a thing and uh, want to reach out to Mr. Brain, it sounds like he uh, might welcome you with open arms. I wonder what software was with the Symphony 12 back in the day, and if yes. it just could be duplicated. The Symphony 12 software is out there in the repository, but I don't think it works with this board. Oh, okay. I don't know if it doesn't work or maybe it's a bad copy of it, but uh, I actually had a Symphony 12 with a keyboard a long awesome. time ago. I don't mm -hmm. have any more. I wish I did, but uh, you could make, uh, like, have seven, I think, simultaneous voices. It came with different different software where you could change the envelopes and you know, mm -hmm. toy with that. It wasn't it wasn't super capable, but it was it was cool for its time. Yep. Cool. Well, anybody out there can help Jim get get a hold of him. All right, the next news item is uh, from again our good friend Mr. Jim Gary. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Now, this is not a 1970s B movie, folks. This is a game on the MC10, and it looks uh, it looks like a maze game, John. Pretty cool. Oh, yeah. the, the animation he's got on the you have to open up a hole for the tomato to fall into. So. This 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 hole forms and it's got a little bit of animation involved with it when it uh, opens and closes. <laughs> Never disappoints. So always have some cool stuff from Jim. This is no exception. Pretty cool. All right, our next news item is UB sixty four version one point three is out now. Anyone that's used the old Microsoft uh, DOS back in the day, which probably many of us are, we're we're all a little bit older here. This looks like an exact clone of that. It, it's obviously been updated with additional features and things as it's being developed, but it, it's a great program. I've used it. You can compile actual basic programs for those familiar with Color Basic. There's a lot of things that are very, very similar. And there's even an IDE for it called Inform. I just like the old school editor that QB64 comes with itself. Uh, it's very similar to FreeBasic, those type of things. And, yeah, they're up to version 1.3 now. I'm not sure if any of you guys have used it, but uh, I use it under Linux, actually, for some quick programming. It actually comes in very handy. Yeah, I know there's some people with some interest in it. Um, it's probably the closest modern uh, programming environment that uh, to, to Color Basic that's actually out there and maintained. It's cloning um, QBasic or QuickBasic. Or I'm not sure how much difference there is between QBasic and QuickBasic. Anyway... It's kind of cloning that, and uh, which of course is Microsoft Basic, and is going to be very similar to um, to Color Basic in many ways, including the syntax of the play command. <laughs> Figure there's probably somebody out there who, uh, who likes to program in it. If not, if you're itching to program in Basic and want to use a modern environment, well, here's your pointer. Yeah, that's perfect. You don't have to have an old computer if you want to get into pro you know Basic programming, work on all the platforms. Uh, Neil, didn't you say our booth babes uh, sometimes program in QBasic or QB64? They do. Yeah. <laughs> right, our next news item is uh, new text adventure assignment 45 from Jim Gary. He continues with his march along every month with new games for the MC10. 
This one's very interesting. You, uh, it's the year 2154. You play a commander, Harry Flynn. You've been brought on to rescue a young daughter of a president from the planet Stira, it looks like. I actually did start playing this. Like a lot of the text adventure games that have been ported, I think this was from Micro 80. You know, he does a great job with these conversions. I, you know, there's got to be a ton of work that goes in them if you ever flip through the source code on these things. There are things he has to do to make it work on an MC-10, so... You know, the, the guy is an absolute machine. For people that have an MC-10 or even don't, there's emulators out there. Uh, give these things a try. He puts a lot of time into them. The next game, actually the next news item, is another game from Jim Gary, uh, Crash, Can You Survive? It has to deal with a business. You're basically flying a small aircraft as part of a business trip. You, uh, you actually crash over some mountains, drops you into, well, wherever. I don't know. I don't know what mountains they actually are. But you have a hurt leg, and the idea is, is how long can you survive? I actually like the uh, the Crash logo that he's got at the beginning of this game, too. It's all, you know, the semi-graphics type thing, but um, it looks like another great game. All right, our next news item. As we move along with the Gimme X project, it's time to incorporate a few improvements into the design. I have been reading the news on this, a lot of interest in this project. You know, I am curious how many bad gimmies there are out there. Uh, I don't know if we ever got a count of people that are actually uh, keeping track of that. It would be interesting to know um, because this is a pretty big project, and it looks like Ed's got a few updates. He's adding support for greater than 512K of memory. He's got a lower-profile PLCC design. It looks like he's still moving forward. You know, I <clears throat> at the show, I heard they had one of these there, I think, um, Gary Becker had one at his table, but I did not get a chance to uh, get over there and take a look at it. I'm not sure if any of you guys did. Our next news item is from Neil Cherry. I threw together a quick repo of my Python 3 scripts for working with C10 files. So this is more for the MC10. It looks like he's got some conversion programs to go from, looks like bin to C10, C10 to bin. I saw he was talking with Jim Gary I think the same Neil Cherry actually did the Java emulator for the MC10. So, bin, bin. yeah, yeah, that's what it looked like. So, <laughs> some nice I, utilities I for those with the MC10. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know why the um, MC10 emulator folks decided to, they had to have their own extension for their cassette file format. <laughs> um, you know, if you look in the uh, service manuals, I'm pretty sure byte for byte. The, the data in a cassette um, save for an MC10 is um, the same as as for a Coco. I think some of their emulators may produce occasionally a slightly different, you know, a random byte difference or something. You know, if you use the CAS files like from um, produced by uh, Toolshed, they work, <laughs> or, or you know, within the the basic uh, tokens are different and that sort of thing, but. You know, I've used uh, the the toolshed uh, utilities to manipulate cassette images and load them on MC10. Uh, so anyway, my point is, I don't know where why they decided they had to have a C10 file instead of a CAS file. Maybe they were just trying to differentiate between their MC10 files and their Coco files. But it's a little confusing that they they refer to these C10 files, and and I'm not sure we really need a set of different scripts for the uh, C10 uh, versus CAS. That said, we have them. Feel free to use them. I'm certainly not trying to cast any pall on that. 
I guess if anything, what I'm trying to say is if you think that the function that's provided here is cool, you probably can use them with CAS files. Um, <laughs> there is a plus there for Cocoa people too. Yeah, I actually, it's interesting you bring that up. You actually helped me some months ago when I was looking for a way to convert C10 files to CAS, and I didn't realize they were pretty much the same. MAME does not recognize C10, and I basically just take a lot of these files and rename them with the CAS extension, and they just work. Very interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, yep. And then our uh, our next news item is from uh, Michael Furman. Announcement Pi DriveWire version 0.5. Uh, it's the Cocoa Fest 2019 release. Michael has been working on this for quite some time. It is basically a DriveWire daemon uh, written in Python. I, I've worked with it for a while now with him. He, he's put a lot of work into this thing. It's it's actually a, a great product. He's added a, quite a few features to it, web interface. He's added um, EMC protocol support. So for those with an MC10 and an MCX128, you can actually load your software extremely easy into an MC10. So seems MC10 is the theme of the news items I've been doing. Um, so for those that don't have one, make sure to find one on eBay, get a good deal, and you can use this with it. Same drive wire cable. Michael's been very quick to respond to any bug fixes and things like that. It's a pretty solid product. I, I have it on my machine. I run it on Raspberry Pis. Uh, it's very lightweight. And he's very open to uh, to people's requests if there's something worthwhile that somebody thinks needs to be added. Uh, reach out to him. And if you haven't tried it out, please do so. For those that struggle with some of the Java issues on like Windows and things like that, because that Java port hasn't been updated in quite some time, this may be an option. Uh, Python is not too bad to install in Windows. Cool. And it, it should be seamless to install on any of the Linux distributions. <laughs> Very easy to install in Linux, yes, absolutely. This case was a real stumper. I'd been wandering through the Fort Worth fog half the night, looking for the impossible. A new keyboard for a TRS-80. To nurse my luck, I stopped into a cozy dive called Darcy's for a glass of suds. The bartender dropped a glass and I turned to see what distracted him. Gentlemen. Miss Ada Barlow silenced the room by her presence. She ordered and then took the seat next to mine. Hey, handsome. I see you're looking for a keyboard. That was obvious, as the original was sitting on the bar next to my depleted glass. Do you know where I can find one? No, but I know something that's even better. I was intrigued. I patted my shirt pocket, looking for the weathered notebook and the nub of a pencil that usually lived there. Okay, what do you know? You want the new Key A from PlaidFest software. It allows you to connect a modern PS2 or USB keyboard to your TRS-80, both Model 3 and 4. Plus, it has an Atari joystick port that works with most TRS-80 games. Where do I find this New Key 80? Just point your little web browser to newkey80.com. You'll find what you're looking for. Much obliged, ma'am. Finally, a break in the case. I dusted off my jacket, tossed a crumpled bill onto the bar to cover both Miss Barlow's tab and my own. Some days, even I get lucky. I quipped as I grabbed my hat and headed back into the night. The New Key 80 keyboard interface, only from PlaidVest Software. Okay, our uh, next news item is the RetroShield 6809 operation from Erturk Kokolar. 
he if uh, if you recognize that name, it's because he's associated with the Simon 6809. I know a couple of us have that uh, board to uh, play around with, and uh, he's made some improvements to that. But uh, this is actually a shield you can plug into uh, an Arduino, and it lets you uh, access the 60, uh, 6809 chip. Yeah, so it looks like a cool piece of hardware for somebody to want to play around with. Um... Like I said, I've got one of those Simon 6809 boards from uh, from Air Turk, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. If this uh, little design here looks uh, uh, exciting to you, then uh, I suspect you'll enjoy using that too. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, kind of cool. Yeah, you may want to check it out. All right, our next one comes from 4keyboard.com, and it's Atari non-transparent keyboard stickers. Uh, it doesn't really talk about this, but I, I'm assuming that uh, the keycaps on the Atari uh, rub off over time. This is a solution that's just some, some opaque vinyl stickers that you can put on your Atari keys. So you got, uh, you know, if you've got some that are faded out or, or rubbed off completely, it gives you like a new keyboard uh, in about 15 minutes just by put, applying the stickers. Yeah. So why is this on our list, right? <laughs> <laughs> so. So my, my point here, when I saw this, I thought they were kind of interesting. I thought, um, well, that's sometimes, I don't know if we have a big problem with this in the community, but I have occasionally seen some keyboards with, with uh, a lot of wear on them. If we had something like this for the Coco, that could help there. Plus, um, you know, we've, that's one of the continuing problems with the keyboard replacement projects is where do you get keycaps or whatever. Well, maybe if we had the a source for stickers, maybe you'd go with a blank keycap somehow. I don't know. It's just more brainstorming than anything. But the main point I was um, drawn to, and I'm not, I don't see it here, but I think maybe someone else, maybe when I found this link, it was someone was suggesting this. You could um, have something like this that you could then label on your PC keyboard you know, we all, when we try to use the emulator, we know it tend to have this uh, emulated versus natural or, or whatever terms they use, whether the key layouts are different between, you know, the classic or whatever old style typewriter keyboard layout that's on the Coco versus the more modern IBM style keyboard layout that's on, you know, modern PCs. And so sometimes it might be cool to have some stickers you could put down <laughs> on some of the keys to say, oh, if you're doing a Cocoa emulation, you know, the dollar sign is here versus uh, over there, you know, that sort of thing. So if somebody, some engine enterprising uh, uh, maker of, uh, you know, doodads for the Cocoa wanted to have something like that printed up, uh, I'd be happy to bless that project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially the clear key. We never have that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our next one is another cool one. It's from Todd Wallace. Uh, it's a progress report on my OS9 Disk Extended Color Basic Disk Utility, showing off simultaneous floppy disk controller and Coco SDC operation. Todd's written a, a machine language utility. You get a command line, and it lets you mount different format disks and manipulate them, do directories on them. So from one prompt, you can look at an OS9 disk or an image on a, an SDC card or floppy controller. And he uses the correct uh, forward slash, too. I like that. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, Todd, um, uh, he's um, been working on this for a while. He's uh, he's on the Discord chat server, um, well, with a pseudonym, shall we say. But uh, he's definitely been working hard learning uh, assembly language. And um, 
and experimenting with uh, file system operations and, and how to drive the floppy controller and all that sort of stuff. So he's put a lot of work into this, and uh, so if uh, you may want to check it out just to let him know you're taking a look. Yeah, great job. Keep up the good work. All right, our next one is the Retro Search is a specialized search engine indexing TRS-80 resources across the Internet. This is from Kevin Parker. So this is a uh, search engine specifically for TRS-80 resources. Uh, I played with it a little bit. It was interesting how many hits you can get. I just did a quick search for multi-pack, and I got a big, long list of uh, PDFs and articles and references. Didn't find everything, but there is an advanced search that lets you do, uh, you know, even more in-depth, but it's uh, neat to have a search engine specifically, uh, you know, for TNT computers. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of neat. I don't know if we actually need it. I mean, I don't have that much trouble finding stuff with just a normal Google search, but uh, it's kind of cool to think you could limit some of your garbage responses <laughs> by going to a TNT-specific search group. Yeah, yeah. Our next one is from Sheldon McDonald. Another Game Master cartridge demo, trying something new. We've covered Sheldon in the last uh, few uh, podcasts uh, because he's been working on this with the GMC. In this one, he describes he set up a player that will actually play music in the background in memory, so it, it kind of lets you, you know, multitask. You can do th other things in basic while your music is playing. I would assume that you know this is developed so that you could, you know, use it in a game for background music, for instance. He's showing where he's actually added uh, an audio jack onto the the the, um, the card, the audio output from the card, and then feeding it back in through the cassette port. <laughs> which yeah. I'm kind of lukewarm on the idea. He seems to think it's a great idea. You know, it's um, not exactly my vision for the hardware, shall we say. <laughs> um, but if you want to stick to uh, a pure basic kind of implementation. I think uh, you can do the audio on and audio off more quickly than you can do the sequence of uh, pokes that you need to uh, to disable the um, the audio input for, through the cassette or through the cartridge port. If you don't mind the cable, it may be an advantage in that respect. So to each his own. If that's what he likes to do it, you know, I sold him the cards. He can sell it or what he wants to to him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so, definitely a unique way of doing it, but it works, and uh, and he's definitely it's good to see some doing work with it. Yeah, exactly. So, good job, Sheldon. All right, our next one comes from Per Surratt. AGD converted games, new releases. So we've got some more new games that have been converted with AGD for the Coco. Always good to see some more games, right? <laughs> Hard to yeah, comment on everyone with uh, with this group of uh, event because uh, there's just so much of them. Yeah, they keep they keep on coming. Yeah, that's amazing. No shortage. <laughs> Very good stuff. All right, our next uh, news article is from uh, James Jones. Uh, it's migrating color basic code to basic 09. Yeah, so kind of mentioned earlier that James uh, seems to have a little bit of a quest uh, to promote basic 09. <laughs> And so, so, again, this is a part of it, and we're uh, happy to try to help promote it, uh, whatever he's doing there. Yeah, that's great. All right, our next uh, news article is from uh, Bill Toulis at Tech Nadu. This was actually a very sad one, at least for me. Nintendo takes down Commodore 64 part of Super Mario Brothers. The, the developer is actually working on that for seven years. 
And then it was going to get down in four days, it shows here. It looked like a pretty amazing effort. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a shame. I don't know. I think this is one of those where we're just uh, the retro computing uh, lobby is a little too small. <laughs> so we can Nintendo is not going to take not not going to get much of a black eye from beating up on the retro computing guys. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Well, no good deed goes unpunished. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, I understand protecting your um, protecting your mark there, protecting your property or whatever. It's like, you know, people argue, well, what if you turn Super Mario into a porn character or whatever? But that's not what he did, right? He did a faithful port to an, an otherwise unsupported platform. That's right. And, and, you know, again, I'm not arguing that it's legal or, or you can't enforce things. I'm not trying to take anybody's rights away or whatever. This is all about what's really right or wrong or moral or immoral or whatever. Not, we're not, I'm not arguing the law. So get off my back on that, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I think it's a shame that uh, that Nintendo is so worried about its um, 30-year-old untapped market that they just don't want it to exist at all. You know, I don't think any, I don't think they're losing one dime to somebody playing Super Mario Brothers on their Commodore 64. No. Um, and it probably doesn't matter to them. I think they might have lost a dime or two in goodwill. Right. Um, but you know, that's their judgment to make. So. You know, legally, they can do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah it's, they probably had to fight it on precedence, right? If they let this one slide, then someone would have a precedence to do something else even worse. That's probably true, but they could have they could have made an offer to license it somehow, right? Yeah, um, yeah that would have been nice. It may be too much trouble. It may not be worth the thing. I'm sure we can argue and argue and argue, whatever. Um, I'm sure there's a way they could have said, hey, that's cool, Um but we can't just let everybody do this. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a way they could have done it and not somehow giving up all their rights to Super Mario Brothers, you know? Right. Yeah, this, yeah. this goes in the wish department. We wish they wouldn't have. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's wishful thinking and uh, not to be expected from a, a, a multinational uh, billion-dollar corporation or whatever, but in a better world, that's what would have happened. Yeah. And it's sad, too, because, I mean, uh, you know, this project and a lot of these type of projects, it's, it's more of a technical challenge, I think, you know, than, uh, you know, no one's, no one's profiting on this, you know. Yeah. It's just more like, a, you know, because you can kind of thing, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he could have done it because he could and then put it in his closet and showed his buddies. And yeah. would nobody would ever said anything because yeah. no one would have ever known. Um, is that what he ought to have to do in a perfect world? No. Uh, in the real world, well, it looks like that's what he had to do. But. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, it was out for a week. That means it's going to be around forever. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Our next news article is from Jim Gary. I think that Jim Gary's been in every section here almost. This game, he ported another game. is called World Gov or World Governor. And it's uh, basically a a simple version of Civilization. Uh, he's ported over to the MC-10, and it was uh, originally a German game, so he uh, also had to convert all the German to English as well. That's <laughs> so quite, quite a project. Yeah. It was rewriting the basic codes not hard enough. Deutschland. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, way to go, Jim. We definitely appreciate your efforts. Oh, yeah. yeah great work. 
All right, our next uh, news article is from Kyle Orland at Ars Technica. Uh, did a vigilante ROM leaker go too far to preserve a lost Atari ROM? Yeah. Did you guys read this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wow. You know, so the gist is that uh, somebody came in to repair, to do some sort of arcade repair, and the collector has some super rare stuff. I don't even think it's a machine being repaired. Um, the repairman <laughs> took it upon himself to open up the other game and dump the ROMs and uh, and then made them available uh, without permission from the from the owner or whatever. Yeah. What do you think about that, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, there's the historical preservation aspect. Um, you know, the, the owner didn't want it done, but, I mean, the owner doesn't really have any more copyright status of for those ROMs than they would if somebody else dumped them. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there was only three, there's only three of these machines in existence, three of these cases. Right. So, so this is and, not a ROM that the, that the owner modified himself. This is just something he had. Yeah. This is an original okay. ROM is my understanding. Yeah. It's an original Atari ROM for this game that never got released beyond these three cabinets. I mean, yeah. I don't know. What do you think uh, if someone came into your house to fix something, John, and they decided to lift a copy of uh, Farfall, and then suddenly it shows up in Mame next week? Well, I mean, I agree. The, well, especially the you know the in the house poking around parts of your property that that um, you know you didn't authorize, definitely questionable at best, shall we say? Right. Um, the fact that he had to pull a board and pull the ROMs, maybe that makes it a little different. If he could have somehow just copied it off, would that make it okay? You know, just pressed a button and it was there. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that changes it in people's minds. Maybe it does. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, what's the objection here? Is it that they, that he opened up the guy's case without permission, or is it that this guy owned one of only three things and now there's a, a copy in the wild? I don't think anybody's too upset about. The greedy collector, shall we say? And it's not fair to call the guy greedy, but let's let's go ahead and caricature it for purpose of this discussion. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody's too concerned about some greedy collector hoarding a few bits, literally bits that only they had access to, somehow not being a, as exclusive a club anymore. Or maybe they are. I mean, I don't know. The creeping around the garage and opening up parts of cabinets that you weren't authorized to open up. Well, that part's definitely pretty objectionable. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's the yes. part of play here. Yeah. It was the Should way have it was asked. Should have asked. Right. All right. Yeah. Our next uh, news article is from uh, Jenny List at Hackaday. Now, this one is definitely sacrilege, at least to me. A chandelier guaranteed to make some retro game hardware collectors wince. Wow. Basically, what it is is uh, someone has taken 12 uh, light guns or zappers from the NES and made a chandelier out of them. Yeah. And it's hideous. Yeah. Well, it is ugly. Yes. Uh, the only saving grace here is that it's the orange ones. It, you know, they, were, they were originally gray, and then they had the, the, the law passed that said the play guns needed to be blaze orange or whatever. The, 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 these are the later ones. And, you know, you can get reproductions of these pretty easy, too. Uh, I assume, well, I'm assuming these are not reproductions. Who knows? Maybe they are. Yeah. 
But still, if these if these were original items, this is not something I could support. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, no. I mean, reproduction would be one thing, but uh, you know, if you're gutting out twelve of the uh, original, you know, zappers, I know there's lots to go around. But if this keeps happening, there there won't be. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, this is kind of it. Kind of reminds me. Several years ago, it was very popular for people to take the old what some people call the toaster style Macs, you know, the original Macintoshes yep. and, yep. uh, and turn them into aquariums for some reason. Oh yeah. Um, and planters, yeah. And planters and some other stuff, which I never really understood. And to me almost seems more disrespectful than respectful, but it seemed like there's the people who love the Mac that were doing it. I don't know. So it kind of reminds me of that. I didn't really get it then. And I don't really get this either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, our last news article is from uh, Nick Marentes. He's programmed a game menu for playing Coco 1 and 2 P-Mode 3 games on a Coco 3 with enhanced color and higher clock speed. you guys check this out? Yeah, I, I checked yeah. it out. I seen it earlier. It's just switching the color slots. So when you start yeah. the game, that's a pretty cool idea. It was pretty neat, kind of innovative. I've heard of hacks like this going back a long time, but they were always kind of individual things or little one-off programs for specific one-off loaders for specific programs or whatever. Uh, whereas in this case, he's kind of generalized it and and uh, made it available. And then uh, I think somebody else has gone. Um, he made the source available. Somebody else has extended it to um, support Coco VGA as well. So you get a broader range of colors, and uh, instead of being only on a Coco 3, it, you can do sort of the same thing on a, on a Coco VGA-equipped Coco 1 or 2. Yeah, that was neat to see. Definitely cool, neat way to uh, to improve the playability or the, or the sensory experience <laughs> <laughs> on some old games. But yeah, so yeah, good job, Nick. Uh, glad to see you um, contributing some uh, some useful code. Well, I think that uh, wraps up our, our news segment for this month. So we'll take another little break and hear from our sponsors. And um, uh, we'll be back with some feedback. Looking for the best service, best selection, and best prices for your color computer shopping needs? Coco Pro. At Coco Pro, we bring you the best value for your Coco shopping dollar. We carry a wide variety of new hardware products at prices too low to advertise. Gently used hardware products with a full 30-day warranty, as well as something you won't find anywhere else. Gently used software at incredible savings from 30 to 80% off retail value. Easy on your wallet, easy on the convenience. Our inventory changes daily and contains at least 120 of your favorite Coco software titles at all times. All are legitimate copies with full documentation. There's only one place for the best service, the best selection, and the best prices. Coco Pro. We had fun. We had fun. We had fun. Coco Fest. We had fun. We had fun. We had fun. Coco Fest. Coco Fest. Coco Fest. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Now it's time for some feedback. The first item 
today is a little bit different. I got some uh, oral feedback. Is that the right term? A word of mouth, shall we say, from someone. I'm going to let the person uh, remain anonymous uh, just because it doesn't really matter who it is. But the, the gist of the feedback, so in our previous discussion, uh, previous month's discussion, we uh, had to talk about who qualifies to be a creator. Basically, the gist of that discussion is that uh, you do. <laughs> um, uh, everybody should do their thing and not be afraid to, to um, well, I said spread your wings. And, uh, and so in there, I had this quote. So I said, spread your wings, but try not to ruffle anyone else's feathers, um, which I thought was a nice way to say, you know, do what you want to do and have fun, but try not to be a jerk. Uh, but the feedback is that spread your wings, but not, but don't ruffle other people's feathers is somehow hypocritical. Um, which well, uh, number yeah. one, I reject because for it to be hypocritical, I'd actually have to be saying that and then going out and ruffling people's feathers on purpose, which I don't think I've done. Uh, if I have, you know, feel free to send me some feedback. Um, but, uh, again, the, the point, I think it, it, it highlights that maybe the wording is too subtle or maybe the, the notion or the feeling is too subtle. The message I'm trying to convey is two parts is, you know, one is, you know, like I said, do what you want to do. Nobody's trying to control you. Nobody's trying to say you can't do something. Nobody's trying to say that somebody else owns something or whatever, which was, a ridiculous interpretation I saw certain people making on Facebook. Yeah. R ridiculous, dumb, stupid, really. Um, nobody is trying to control anyone. Nobody is trying to say anybody owns certain parts of the, of the community or whatever. All we were saying, all I was saying is, um, you know, we're all in this together. We're all trying to have fun. Nobody owns the community that, that implies Nobody owns the right to, to just jump over somebody else and kick them out of the community. So don't be a jerk. That's all I'm really saying. Don't be a jerk. Work on your own stuff. Do what you want to do. Have fun. If it's the one thing you just got to, that you're in the community for or whatever, and you just got to do it, fine. But in general, don't be a jerk. And I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's hypocritical. I don't think it should be controversial. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really, I don't see, I don't see there anything. That, that ought to be the new Coco Fest shirt for next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Welcome to Coco Fest. Touch the hair, but don't be a jerk. <laughs> okay, next item <laughs> of feedback comes from Mike Brandt. I think this is in reference to we're talking with uh, Mark Marlette, and uh, he was announcing some of his uh, products and some of them related to the Dragon. Mike Brandt, always uh, always happy to point out uh, available products on the community uh, on the mailing list and such. And so in here he's saying, in reference to Drivewire and the Dragon, Tormod has some pretty nice products. There's a link there, tormods.me slash products. He has Drivewire cables and a Drivewire standalone server. So thank you, Mike Brandt, for pointing that out. I'm sure Tormod appreciates it. Okay, well, that's the end of our lively feedback session <laughs> for the day. Uh, we'll take another little break and uh, probably be back with some sort of host discussion. Fort Knox. More than 5,000 tons of precious metal lie behind a 22-ton vault door. The walls are concrete-lined granite. There are armed guards, fences, tanks, and Apache helicopters to deter any unwanted entry. 
makes stealing gold from Fort Knox virtually impossible. But how do you protect? Toilet paper? It's Color Outhouse, an outrageous game for the Tandy Color Computer. Thieves are sneaking into your outhouse to steal toilet paper. You must protect your outhouse from above in your very own flying saucer. Keeping these tissue bandits at bay is only part of the problem. The sky is filled with other deadly unfriendlies. Do you have the skill to keep your rolls intact? Color Outhouse. Distributed by Computer Shack. 32K required. All right, welcome back, Coco Cruisers. So we thought we would uh, just introduce um, just a little host discussion, kind of get uh, a survey of opinions from our uh, from our hosts and um, kind of collect uh, some ideas about how to get along in the hobby here. So the, uh, the topic we want to discuss, well, basically how to approach a project. Uh, so you've decided on a project, something you want to build or something you want to do. You're going to write a game, something like that. Do you start with the hard part first? What do you do with the the fun part first? Um, do you work on whatever's kind of core of the project first, or do you work on you know the flashy stuff that makes you excited about the project first? What do you do first? What do you start on? For me, when I start a project, uh, I start with the worst, like the the hardest part. The reason why is I'm like that with anything, you know. Like I want to get the you know the worst part done. First, and in this way, I can also find out if I can actually pull it off as well. Because if you start, you know, if you start with something really easy, you know, you don't, I don't want to hit that roadblock, you know, where I, I can't continue anymore. To kind of try to get the worst done and then smooth it out from there. Yeah, that makes sense to me. When I'm working on a project, I guess it kind of depends on the kind of project. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, associate me with some programming projects. Um, certainly in the real world as well, um, but uh, in the cocoa world, part of what keeps me going in there is is the ability to to flex my muscles in more than one way. Not everything I've done in the cocoa world is a programming project, so it kind of depends. What I think I tend to do is kind of figure out well what part of the project is important, and yet I'm not sure I know how to do it, or I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. So I guess in my list of you know what what do you do first? This is probably what I would call core first. So, for example, in Farfall, years ago, well, the first thing I did before I really even tried to do a game was I set up some code. If, you, if you're familiar with Farfall, you know, in the background, I have walls of color that kind of move up the screen, five or six different sections. What I wasn't sure was, well, how fast can I make those go? <laughs> uh, I wasn't sure what the capabilities were. I was still pretty new to any kind of performance programming on the Cocoa at that point is talking about eight years ago or something, seven years ago, something like that. And so the first thing I did was I wrote some code that uh, just did the little rainbow effect up on the, up, the, up and down the size of the screen. Once I kind of figured out I could do it and how fast, how big they could be and how fast they can move, uh, I was able to go from there and start doing some math and figure out if I could do enough of them and how much time was left over and, and whatever else, probably in a in a similar vein, um, when I was thinking about originally doing the resin casting for the <laughs> cocoa cartridge cases, the first thing I did was uh, I figured out how to build a mold out of silicon, <laughs> and um, and then cast some stuff, you know, different shapes or whatever, to figure out 
you know, what does it take to, to make that happen? I, I guess that would be my approach in general is to try to attack the core of the problem first, figure that anything else is can fall out. Usually uh, what I take on as a project is based on motivation for wanting to either see something that doesn't exist or something to help me out personally. I don't know about you guys, but I am not good at estimating the complexity of something until I start getting into it. So uh, I can plan and plan and plan all I want, but typically I don't realize the amount of effort or the total amount of effort until I'm, say, 20, 30, 40% into the project, right? So my mm -hmm. style is to get in, try something. If it's too complex, take a step back, rethink it, and attack it from a different angle until I get it the way I want. So that's my approach to uh, to doing projects. comes from a position of need or, or desire, and uh, with some planning, but with the expectation that the effort is not going to be totally known up front, or at least a good deal of it, and there will probably be unknowns that I run into as I work on the project. Like you say, it's hard to know how complex a project is or a problem is until you're knee-deep in it sometimes. <laughs> you know, so I've heard other people talking in particular about writing a game. I've heard someone express that their approach actually is to start with well, what I might would call window dressing to start with writing up a a title screen and um, basic promotional, you know, the start of the game kind of stuff and whatever, which is probably the stuff I would tend to do last. And I wonder what you guys think of an approach like that, because at least in that case, you do start, you have something to show to somebody <laughs> um, that looks a little more like a finished product, you know, without having done a lot of real work. I think that's a good approach, and I think uh, I think some people do that as kind of because they're using that to kind of develop, especially when it comes to a game, because at any time in the development process, you can say, oh, I'm going to do this instead, or uh, or sometimes you needed to mock something up so you can kind of get a feel for, you know, is it going to be what I want it to be? Is it going to look the way I want it to look? And those, uh, yeah. like, uh, there's many, many people that make up title screens and even publish them, you know, before the game is developed to kind of... Uh, get some feedback and build some excitement to, to drive yeah. them to, to work on it. So, Yeah, well, I think it probably depends on the personality of the person uh, to some degree. If you have that title screen, uh, just that can get a lot of people excited, get a lot of people asking, hey, how's that going, and that sort of thing, which is can be a motivational thing yeah. and can kind of keep you working on a project. Whereas in my case, if somebody was constantly asking me about the, the how I was doing on the, the title screen I published uh, three years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So it, it just probably depends a little bit on your own personal personality and how you communicate and who you communicate with. For me, I think the hard part is actually usually the most rewarding and fun part, right? Sure. Because that's where you're going to learn the most. You're pushing, pushing yourself. Uh, I'm starting a project that involves some hardware, so that's probably the hard part. But uh, that's the most fun, you know, figuring out how to the timing of the rights and everything correct on the bus. Sure, sure, that makes sense. I I think for for me too, it's those those are fun parts, but there are also parts that sometimes you want to put to the end because uh, if you know, you, you want to avoid the pain or you just want to be more prepared. You're just the kind of person that procrastinates because the hard stuff is what you do last. Uh, that's another approach. I think, like, making the title screen first on a game is kind of cool because it gets you in the mood and in the mode for the game, right? It gets you excited. And then that excitement can help you 
uh, can carry you through the rougher parts of, of the learning process and things you're not necessarily comfortable with. Sure, I get that. Sometimes the hard stuff is hard because it's the core of what you're doing is the, the engine. Of, you know, the hard part is writing the, the engine of the game. Until you write the engine of the game, you can't really play the game, right? Right. Um, and so animating the Bumblebee character may be cute and fun, but, you know, you do that first and all you end up with is a, an animation of a Bumblebee. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might be rewarding. I mean, some people, that would be it for some people, right? That would be fun and cute and, hey, look what I did. And that's enough for some people. And, and if that's enough for you, I, I do not fault you at all. Uh, but just saying that, uh, you know, it could be an easy thing to do. Now, some people say animation, that's not easy at all. And I agree, it, it depends on what your skills are and, and what your perspective is. But uh, like you say, in, in some cases, you might have to do the hard part first. If you're writing pole position or some clone of pole position, to me, it would be hard to figure out how to how to display the curves in the road. I think that would be a little difficult. But if, if you're doing a racing game and you can't do it, don't have any curves in the road, it ain't much of a game, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so you're going to have to do that part first. So you, you might need a little bit of that faith and confidence or dead reckoning and where you're going to at least break through a little bit. It probably just comes down to the person. There's probably no one set way. And uh, it may not even be one set way for everybody. It's like you say, I can see some of these arguments. I can see where if you really know what your end goal is, then uh, coding up, especially if your end goal is to clone some some game or whatever, uh, then coding up that intro screen, which might include uh, developing uh, some character graphics or whatever, that that's pretty helpful for the rest of the game. You already have that graphic done. It might make sense to to, to do just the title screen first or whatever. In other cases, that doesn't buy you much, so uh, you kind of need to start off with uh, your your combat system, or your or um, your say if you're doing a, a like an RPG or something where you need to show maps a lot, you need to figure out how to put a map up on the screen. Definitely different ways you might approach it. So I've been listening to all these, and actually, I I kind of lean toward the Boise thing. It's it's been hard for me to try to gauge some of the time I think I'll have to invest to, to pull off some of the things that, you know, you want to work on. What I find most enjoyable, though, about working on, on projects is learning, John, you touched on this, learning some of the underlying back-end technologies that you may need in, in order to do something like that. And many times, you know, you may have to learn a new a skill to be able to, to completely build what you're trying to do. In some ways, that can lead to, uh, you know, to other distractions. But for me, that, that's the most enjoyable. So, you know, if I had to answer, I would probably work on some of the harder stuff first. I try to reuse as much from a programming perspective, try to reuse as much code as I can for things I've developed for other things, try to leverage that. A great example of, of one is uh, something simple. And this is like with the, uh, the Cocoa Pie project. Um, name's a big part of it. And there is the ability to load software using something called the software list feature within MAME. I spent some time working on a program to take files from the TRS-80 Color Computer Archive, which has information about the author, which has good descriptions. Actually read those, pull the files out of the zips, and generate the correct XML file that can be pulled into MAME. That was part of a bigger project, but that was kind of a 
a necessity that I wanted to make things easy to load for that particular feature. So I get pulled in a lot of different directions and the big part is just to stay motivated. You know, if it's something you want to complete, you got to find ways to make it enjoyable. Sure. Yeah, that, that's an important part is maintaining your motivation and not getting too distracted by something else. And so then you need to be do something to have at least some fun or at least to enable some fun. <laughs> well, you break it apart into smaller pieces. I mean, some things, you know, when I say you work on the hard stuff, for me, you know, you may have to throw a couple simple things in there so you can get some successes. Because if you're, if you're just going to hit roadblocks all the time. And then, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, walking away for a little bit. There's been many things that, you know, you spend an all-night session working on. Oh, yeah, and you're yeah. like, you know what, if I walk away from it from a day. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's amazing how many times you're like, oh, that's all I needed to do. And then it just kind of comes together. So I think that's an important part of keeping things going is you, you got to have some some easy successes so you can focus more on the harder ones and, and not feel too discouraged because you did have some of those um, easier successes as part of the overall project. Well, I think that's probably enough to wrap it up. Has anyone else got any final thoughts? Keep making. Don't give <laughs> us. Don't give up. That's the biggest thing, right? Whatever works for you, that. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for a lovely discussion. Probably take another little break and uh, have uh, the rest of the show. Excuse me. Can I help you? Mm, I'm not sure. I'm looking for the perfect color computer monitor. It should be a 12-inch computer monitor that has TTL RGB, RGB analog, and composite video inputs. It needs a display resolution of 640 by 240 and support 80 by 25 text on the screen. It should have a monochrome mode, a comb filter for composite video, and a built-in audio amplifier. Oh, and a two-year parts and labor warranty. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. You want a Magnavox. The Magnavox Professional RGB Monitor 80. The perfect color computer monitor. All you've wanted in a computer and more. The TDP System 100, a complete system ready to plug into your color TV set. It features 16K of memory, expandable to 32K at any TDP service center nationwide. And expand from 32 to 64K through Southco, the Georgia distributor. Raised keyboard with gold contacts. Standard basic built-in from Microsoft. RS-232 interface device built right in. RF interface for direct hookup to any TV built in. Programming manuals included at no charge. Bust-out game pack included at no charge. Joysticks included at no charge. The suggested retail price is only $379. From Southco Sales Corporation. All right, welcome Coco Cruisers. Uh, we have another delightful interview to share with you. Uh, I really think you will enjoy this. Uh, we have with us Becky Fox Matthews, who was formerly a an author for uh, Rainbow Magazine. Hello, Becky. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Becky, let's uh, just to start off, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh, your own background and um, your own uh, interests that may have led you into the uh, color computer world and, um, you know, how you got involved with, uh, with Rainbow Magazine. Sure. Well, it's uh, kind of one of those roundabout things with a lot of serendipity involved. But I uh, went to college in music education, and uh, when I finished college, it was one of those times when the arts had kind of dropped out of the school systems because I really wanted to teach public school music. And I couldn't find a job. I went to work in a finance company and learned to use computers. And that was back in 1974. And there weren't a lot of computers around. 
And uh, after a short while of working in the finance company, I thought, well, this is not what I really want to do. So I moved to Nashville to take some graduate courses in music. And, uh, you know, Nashville is music city, and so there's all kinds of opportunities for things going on here. In um, 1978, I married Dave Matthews. No, not that one. And that's how he used to always sign off on his emails. No, not that one. But uh, he was a musician. He had actually moved to Nashville to do music for a living. And we got together and first had a garage band called Lunar Patrol. We played Moon Rock. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, uh, and he was really into computers and electronics at that time. He was he was really deep into both of those things, and I was just kind of watching him play with these things and thinking, oh, that looks kind of interesting. But when we saw the first Coco in a Radio Shack, because we were always going to Radio Shack for something, and when I first saw the Coco and saw it had commands like color and sound and print, I thought, okay, it's time for me to get into computers. <laughs> so that was when I got my first cocoa. <laughs> yeah, so I just, you know, was intrigued with learning to program, and, and the basic was so easy to pick up, and it was a well-written manual. And so I just kind of taught myself uh, using the manual, and I had an education background, and I started just doing all these fun things with graphics and music with the computer, and thought, well, I could probably make a little money for this, and I started submitting some things to Rainbow Magazine. And uh, along the same time, we, we were doing, um, first we did a top 40 band with some friends of ours and, and actually toured around the country for a couple of years doing that. Along the same time, we started writing our own original music. So I thought, well, it'd be fun to develop some graphics to go along with our original music. So we were writing songs, science fiction type songs, and I was programming graphics like cartoon-like things on the color computers to go with that. <laughs> and that's some of the things I was submitting to Rainbow. So some several of the things that I submitted, not the um, Otanibon was a Christmas tree decorating program like a get and put where you got to get and put different little uh, ornaments and, and decorate the tree. But the, a lot of the other things I submitted were things, graphics that I had actually done to go with our, our musical show. So we, we really <laughs> were doing some crazy stuff. My husband, so when we started developing our own original music, we had three Cocos we were using in a live show. It was written up in one of the articles in this, I forget which issue it was, but I think it was the last issue um, of Rainbow that came with a cassette tape because we actually had the graphics from one of our songs and immediately after you read, when you started running the program, it would then start the cassette player and Rainbow had permission to, for first publishing rights for our song and it actually played our song. And so that was, yeah, that was kind of kind of crazy. Um, but my husband being a real electronics geek, he had used a gray cocoa with color force, and that was controlling a drum machine and a smoke machine and lights. And this was all pre-MIDI, of course. He had, you know, done all the machine interface himself. And then we had a Coco 2 that I was using for just basic and, and later on using um, one of the paint programs to put images up on the screen on a big screen TV that was back behind us. And then we had a third Coco, a Coco 2 running color force that was running a, it was about a two foot wide, three feet tall robot face that had lights and voices and, and would talk and sing. And we actually told the 
people that were watching us do this crazy show that he was the boss of the band. So, <laughs> wow, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's a um, like a graphic image of of one of the pictures of us with the robot face in between us in that same rainbow issue. And let's see if I reach over here in my stack of rainbows. Becky, you're my new hero. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, I, I think I remember that article in, in those pictures. Yeah, we were in 1986, and it was I want my Coco TV. <laughs> what 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 month was that? June of 1986. I'll have to I'm check that out. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, we had a lot of fun with it, and we actually performed several several places. We performed this crazy show in the famous Bluebird Cafe in Nashville, and and two more clubs that are miraculously still around. Um, uh, Springwater and the Sutler. So, and we did it for a bunch of teenagers who were ice skating at the ice skating rink one time, and that was probably the most fun performance we did. <laughs> so wow. that's kind of what, what we were doing, and and how, how I got to submit articles for Rainbows. I had the education background, so I knew how to teach. So I would take something I had written and use it to teach some concepts, you know, to to people who were reading the magazine. From there, we got into the Amiga. When the Amigas came out, the Commodore Amigas, we got into those. And about the same time, I um, started teaching computers to kids at the Adventure Science Center. It was in the Cumberland Science Museum in Nashville. And, and when I went in to start teaching these summer computer camps, I might have, oh, Lord, I can't even remember what the models were. I know there was like a, one Apple IIc, one Apple IIe, I, you know, and there was some IBM so, something, I, you know, kind of comparable, whatever people were giving up. They were... They were tired of having this computer sit in on their desk in their home and they donated it to the Science Center. So we had this weird variety of computers that I was teaching kids something like Logo, you know, teaching them just some really basic, basically how to use a computer and how to do a little very, very simple programming on a computer. And, uh, and then shortly after that, we started getting some Amigas. We got some Amigas donated from Commodore to the Science Center. And eventually, we had an Amiga computer lab complete with synthesizers and MIDI and full-blown. We're doing some, some really good stuff with that. And I was with the Science Center for 25 years. When I retired four years ago, uh, now I'm back, back teaching computers to kids again. Kind of a serendipitous journey. <laughs> I want to go back to this music thing because I'm pretty fascinated by it. I'm sure you saw the movie Revenge of the Nerds, right, where they used the Coco 2 on stage. No. <laughs> I was thinking that too. No. I have not seen that. I'm not a big movie goer. Wow. Well, anyway, oh, Revenge of the Nerds was was a uh, wasn't that what 84, John? Or it's roughly that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Write it down. So, I'll have to find it. <laughs> yeah, Revenge of the Nerds. I think it was the that was the name of the title. And uh, anyway, they were. I guess the best way to describe it is the Coco 2s were in front of them and they were using a harness around their back of their neck to hold it up as though they could type while standing up and like using it as a, as a synthesizer. Yeah. But you guys you guys were playing music on the stage and the Cocos were off to the side running all these other things Well, no, they were right there with us. They were, they were right there with us because, you know, we were pushing buttons on them. Um, that basically, my husband was pushing buttons on the the Coco running forth that was really synchronizing everything else. So he had the whole stack of Cocos over there, uh, but they were wired up to the drum machine and to some big lights and, and a smoke machine and the robot face. Everything was wired together and and a big screen TV that we got from Sears. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, so it, it was pretty crazy, and we just, you know, we had fun with it. I mean, and there are videos out there, and I, I wish, because lately I was trying to recover some, some things from VCR tapes, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and we at one time, you know, we, we could have run the video and recorded the, the video coming from the Coco, from the graphics, but uh, all the videos we have are a shot of us with the TV in the back running the graphics. So you can't quite see the detail of what's going on on the on the screen, but you, but you get some of the gist of it, you know, and you, mm -hmm. and you can see some of the details. But there were some words and things that you can't quite read from from what comes on the video. And and those I am maybe proud to say are on YouTube. <laughs> really? So they they are on YouTube under a channel yeah, name. So if, you, if you search YouTube uh, for either Becky Fox Matthews, and that's Matthews with two T's and an S on the end, or the name of our group at the time was Adobe Pagoda. <laughs> I know. I know. Just try to think up a new band name and see what you come up with. You know? wow. <laughs> That's what we came with. I see him here. I see Man on the Moon, Ant's House yeah. Triangle, The Dance yeah, of Adam, The Vapors of Venus. I don't think is on there. That's the one that was on the Coco. I need, still need to post that one. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah, and some of those, when you see the TV in the background, you know, you're seeing the color computer yeah. and the graphics. Cool. And the color computer is, again, Controlling everything you're seeing there, the lights and and, and all that, and and the and Adobe's voice, um, which was very tediously programmed by my husband. I'm looking at the uh, the man on the moon, and it definitely looks like a cocoa screen. And, and the graphics <laughs> is running in basic. You know, I, that's what I had learned, and and to me, it was just a fun challenge to make things happen in real time using something as simple as basic to do that. You know, and and it, that's it was amazing. fun. To, yeah, so, you know, I would time some things out, and then he would send triggers for other things so that the chorus would start at the right place, and each song would start at the right place, and it was just a lot of fun. And I see the robot face in the front, too. Uh -huh. So it was just something we came across, um, and just a big plastic face, but he built little eye modules back behind uh -huh. it you know, with, I see with that. Christmas lights and things behind the eyes and the in the mouth, and he and the the robot Adobe. They didn't want us, but the robot Adobe was actually out at Opryland one time on the General Jackson showboat. They somehow they saw what we were doing. Uh, they saw somebody saw us, <laughs> and they called us up and they said, "We want your robot for the skit we're doing on the General Jackson." <laughs> so they didn't want us to perform, but we got to sit down in the in the uh, uh, galley in the in the musicians' place, and and David was actually live running uh, the robot's eyes and things to to this little play and this little thing that they had going on. <laughs> it was all just a lot of fun. It was a hoot. And we did actually put out a CD, so you know we we did finally uh, years later press a CD of of all the Adobe Pagoda songs, so it's out there now. <laughs> so so you said that you were back to teaching uh, dinosaur and stuff today. Yeah, uh, I teach coding uh, using Scratch. Um, that was the drag and drop, real easy programming language for kids. That was developed by MIT. We actually. Um, also, sometimes use the Makey Makey, use hardware, and we do some maker camps as well, where we're teaching kids to use LEDs and batteries and just all kinds of simple electronics that they can they can use to and motors and, and batteries and things to make gadgets and such. So, and that uh, is under a, um, a group called well, it's actually just a, two people 
me and another ex-Science Center educator, and our business is called Kids Create Code. So yeah, we've been doing that for about four years now, and that's been a, a lot of fun. Is that something that's done outside of school or in conjunction with school or what? It is. Uh, we have we have taught one interim for some, some older girls during school, which is a special thing a, a local private school does to give mm-hmm. girls a chance to be exposed to some things that they may not have gotten in their school education. And we did uh, wearable technology with them. We did some of the Adafruit, you know, little boards and programmable things and um, addressable the neopixels and, and conductive thread. We did some things like that with them. But the, most of what we're doing now is uh, during the summer or during uh, spring breaks or winter breaks, and we're uh, teaching in a, a camp situation. And it's kind of fun. We make a half a day of coding and then do the other half of maker camp so kids can come all day and have some different things going on. If like. But I don't know if y'all are familiar with Scratch. It's a really neat little kids uh, language and there's actually a scratch junior for even younger kids it's really a a neat little language and and we equate it for the kids it's like putting legos together you know they drop blocks and grab them and just build build programs by just dropping blocks together and there's a new version scratch 3.0 has just come out and it's got extensions to make it real easy to interface it with things like makey makey and uh, lego mindstorms and the micro bit and we've been using it with Makey Makey. You don't really need these specimens Making Makey Makey. Makey is a hardware device that will work with anything and plug into your computer directly and interface with it without anything else. But it's interesting that they're kind of addressing that need. So um, I like using Scratch and the Makey Makey because it's kind of like what we were doing with our music stuff. It's interfacing the software and hardware, and it gives kids more than just sitting in front of a screen and and typing, you know, they, they actually can make things happen in the real world as well. Back when you were using the Coco, mm-hmm. um, did you guys use music programs like to compose music on the Coco, like Musica 2 or Lyra, or use any specialized hardware or anything like that, like MIDI hardware that came out? We, we really didn't. I, I think maybe by that time we were just buying other things. Uh, I mean, I, I think I first I remember using um, was it Coco Max uh, Paint uh, a paint or Coco Max a, a paint program yep. that came out very early on. But I, and I just don't recall, you know, because when I was I did one one article for Rainbow where um, I did a rendition of Rocky Top and I I used a note system that somebody else had developed for that, you know, that had been previously published in Rainbow. And, uh, and it was real easy to use that and just, you know, put it as a list, put the notes right. on the list. And uh, and I, I, I really enjoyed working with the computer and trying to get uh, sound effects by making things go really fast and do odd little jumps and notes and things like that. And I just, I had a lot of fun doing that kind of thing. And I, I guess it wasn't until I got the Amiga and I, I you know, we got into synthesizers and stuff and, and I was using synthesizers uh, when we were doing the Top 40 and, of course, when we were doing our, our little Adobe Pagoda band thing. I tried several, later on, I tried several music software tools, and I guess I just preferred doing it without that. I knew how to write sheet music, and I would write it on paper. You know? <laughs> and I, I, I do know I, I experimented with several different ones, but I just never really never really went very far with any of them. Um, I liked programming better, I think, than than sitting down at a, at a computer to try to write music. Did you get into the Coco 3 or or not? 
Yeah, yeah, we did. Okay. Uh, we we had just about every model that came out. <laughs> yeah, so we we had them all, and like I said, we just cleared out that part of the garage not too long ago. I wish I'd known about you guys. <laughs> oh no, don't tell me. Did you, did you give them to Goodwill? <laughs> we did. We did. Okay. Uh, and and a ton of of cassette tapes and you know software of all kinds. Wow. <laughs> I know. Oh, now no. I find out. You know? <laughs> hey, I still got an Atari 2600 in the garage if anybody's interested, and I've got a ton of copies <laughs> <just> of that. <laughs> uh, I dropped a link in there to um, lostfrogrecords.com. <laughs> now, if you go to .com, that's my husband's more really bare-bones machine-oriented, but if you go to lostfrogs.net, You'll see the page I put up. I'm having some difficulty linking them together right now or, or, or getting the right one to take control. But .NET is the one that's actually should be accessed first, but they both do link you to yep. all the crazy things we've done over the years. Well, a lot of them anyway. Not all of them yeah. are on, on, well, on the computer. There is a link there if you want to buy the Adobe Pagoda CD. There's also a link uh, to, uh, to Becky's. Uh, YouTube channel, which has um, seems to have uh, records of their performances, and uh, one of them seemed to be the the one in question that we were talking about. Um, yeah, a few of them have Coco graphics in the back. I know. There's also a picture of the robot face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> pretty cool. <laughs> I know. We like I said, we had a lot of fun with that. And, and uh, after that, we kind of had to go back to real jobs again, you know, to make a living. <laughs> But we, we had so much fun doing it all, and we were glad that we, uh, you know, recorded it. Uh, I think David had read something that said, you know, if you don't if you don't put what you did out there to the world, nobody ever knows what you did. So I'm glad I put the things yeah, out through yeah. Rainbow Magazine and had fun with the articles and with that. And, you know, when I came into the Science Center, it helped, too, because I could show educational articles that I had written, and they, they saw that they were, they thought they were well done, and so they, that's when they asked him, well, how would you like to teach computers to kids at the Science Center? And I said, sure. <laughs> and that led to a three- to five-year career, you know. Who knows? Who, who, who would have known? <laughs> how many articles did you write for Rainbow, Becky? I think it was yeah. only about five. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think, well, five that were published, I should say. <laughs> and, and did you ever go to Rainbow Fests? I did not. I never did know um, anything going on with that. I do know... We had a couple of Commodore dealers in town. I can't remember their, you know, Radio Shack doing anything big in town. I don't remember right. even there being a user group at that time. By the time yeah. we got to the Amiga, there was an Amiga user group, and, and my husband and I actually had an Amiga B BBS for quite a few years. But um, at the time wow. we were using the Coco, it was all, we were just all on our own. You know, there was nobody else that we knew of that were doing it here. Uh, which so, probably was, we just probably didn't know about them. But in a city like Nashville, I mean, there was bound to be people that had Cocos that were using them, but you probably just didn't know about them, right? Sure. There was one uh, There was one radio shack down in Verna, Tennessee, that seemed to carry more more stuff for the Coco, and, and, and that's, uh, uh, we would make trips down there occasionally just to see what they had. But we just, for some reason, never never connected with other people. Well, why don't you tell us your involvement with the uh, Maker Fair? Well, Maker Fairs, uh, when I first heard about the whole concept, I was really interested. And in, I worked, I was at the Science Center in Nashville, and a, a couple of guys approached us and asked if the Science Center would be interested in 
hosting Nashville's First Maker Fair, and I was completely behind it because I had researched a little bit and knew what they were about. And I actually went to the Kansas City Maker Fair, which was a pretty big two-day Maker Fair, the year before we hosted our first one to kind of see what it was all about. And uh, so we did host the first several ones at the Science Center, at the Adventure Science Center in Nashville. And now um, an Imagination Lab, I believe it's what it's called, um, at Vanderbilt University has, has taken them over and is now hosting them there. So they're still going on. But they're just great opportunities for people to teach other people about making stuff. And so it's not just showing off what you make. Part of the challenge is to share some of the making process. So I thought this would be a great thing for some of the retro computer community to get involved with because it is show. I mean, there's all kinds of electronics and gadgets and, you know, just anything you could imagine, um, as well as other crafts like woodworkers and printmakers. I mean, it, everything is welcome. Sewing, it, anything and everything that people make, they're welcome. But you are supposed to share some of the process of the making of, the, of what you're showing. Um, and people can sell or people can just show or people can just do demonstrations. Um, They'll have like um, hands-on soldering workshops for kids to sit down and actually solder something together that they get to keep. Um, and it's just a great learning opportunity. Uh, they're all over the United States. They're actually all over the world now. And um, so I definitely would recommend that everybody look into those and, and, and take what you're doing with the Coco community. You know, take what you're doing with this cool retro stuff. Um, retro computer things, and, and I'm sure the maker fairs in your areas would love to have that as an addition to what they're doing, because it's just fun to see the scope of, of what people are doing. It's just amazing. This is Ron. I love to hear your involvement with the kids in, in this type of teaching. So my question for you is, how have the parents been with this? I, I imagine they're very supportive, but I'm also interested to hear if any of the parents have come forward and even mention some of maybe their background, if, if any of them have anything with computers or, or retro equipment or anything like that. I can't say that many of the parents seem to have been involved in computer, computers at all. Um, we are teaching in some private schools, and these kids have had a lot of opportunities. And I don't really know, but the parents have been, have been very encouraging, and especially when we're we're doing this where we're not only teaching them technology, we're teaching them the code. But we're also kind of involving arts and music and, and letting them express themselves uh, as a part of this. So everything we do, you know, they get to put their own twist on it. We, we encourage them to be very creative. So it's kind of that STEAM thing, you know, where we're doing art. And, and we also add in music as well to a lot of the things we're doing. The first few years we taught, we would have a, um, on Friday, we would actually invite the parents to come in and see what the campus had done. And that was really fun, but it got to be, I think, a little stressful, not only for the kids, but for the parents to have to make it there. So <laughs> we'll scale back on that. But but we do uh, share the projects. Um, we, if you go to um, scratch.mit.edu, which is the Scratch online website, you can actually program Scratch right there without downloading anything. But again, if you search for um, if you search for either my name or probably Kids Create Code, you can go to our studio and you can see not only programs that the, as instructors we've written as examples for the kids, but you can also see, see some of the campers programs that they have done. And so the parents can, can see what their kids are doing because we send them links to the, to the studios. And then also the kids often 
when they're coming to camp, they're going home and they're coding, they're working on their project because they can get on the web page and access their pro projects right then at home. And so often, the very first night they're home after being in our camp, they will actually be working on their coding some more to be able to show us that, that they've actually done some more by the next day or the next day. So it's really exciting to see the kids really really uh, learning to code and especially for me to have girls interested because you know we need more we need more women in technology fields. The female involvement in, in uh, software development in particular is strange how it it's you know it flipped uh, in the like the mid 80s or whatever that um, you know the the software that took us to the moon was basically written by uh, one particular woman <laughs> and and but somewhere it somehow became a guy thing it's a little weird yeah i think it's a whole science thing you know so we're we're doing everything we can i know there's there's a you know group called girl, girls i'm trying to you know just blanked on it the girls who code or something like that anyway there there are several different groups that are trying to really just uh, make sure they're encouraging women and young girls to, to get into coding. And I think, you know, we've, we've geared some of our camps toward topics that we thought would really pull them in, um, like storytelling and uh, social media. And, and we're doing a camp this summer where we're going to let them, um, they will be learning to code things that look like social media. So they'll be like coding something that looks like Pinterest or looks like um, um, sure something like that, but but it's not, they're not really getting on those sites. They're, they're learning to code those kinds of things. Or so, how they work. Yeah, hopefully that will that will help girls to, to start to see that, you know, they can do that kind of thing. And and, um, and when that's what we've seen in the past is that they, they really get into it. It's, you know, when my husband first got into it, he was doing like hexadecimal and I was looking at it thinking, <laughs> no, I, I have no interest in that whatsoever. But again, when I saw that first Coco, you know, in, in the radio shack with, with all those cool basic words, sound and, and paint and color and things like that, you know, and that's when I think that the girls are realizing that, you know, oh, computers can really be fun and can, can you can really use them to express your creativity. And so I think that's what uh, a lot of the girls are really enjoying it. and the guys do too, of course. Sure, sure. I'll to leave you guys out. <laughs> Becky, I think you probably have a somewhat unique perspective. Of, um, so just let me pose a question uh, or well, first background. Um, over the the years, recent years maybe, um, uh, we started to see people often say from the political world uh, or prominent business leaders encourage people as sort of a general sense to learn to code or whatever in a just learn to code or whatever right which seems strange to me because having been a child of the 80s i would have thought by now it just would be normal <laughs> that everybody would know how to code but somewhere that that didn't happen uh but i, I do think it's good to, to encourage people to code and um you know males females everyone but i've started to see a few in a few places a few Kind of, you know, like on Twitter or whatever, lesser-known people, but still people that kind of get quoted in in magazines or whatever. There's a few voices that are standing up and saying, "Don't learn to code." I wonder if you've seen any of that pushback or whatever, and if you have any reaction to it. No, I haven't seen any of that. Um, I just, um, um, I, I, I do know there's some sites out there that have some great people, including some sports characters and, and Bill Gates and some of the, um, 
uh, the biggies in Google and different companies like that who are talking about uh, how they think coding you know, Im improves your thought processes and lets you learn how, how to figure things out. So I think that um, I've seen a lot of more positive response, uh, and I, I haven't been seeing any of the negative response, really, um, other than maybe some people thinking that getting into it too, too deeply is not something that kids should be doing. But, yeah. uh, but, I, but I, the parents I've seen whose whose kids have 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 really been enjoying coding have really been excited that they've that they're doing that. I mean, there's there's going to be there there are going to be a huge number of job opportunities for for people who can can code and understand the process of coding. You know, because they might be working with it and maybe not coding themselves, but but having to manage uh, things that, that use, everything's going to use it. <laughs> Computers right. are everywhere. There's nothing you can get into, really, that's not going to be be uh, involving computers these days. So I think it's great for everybody to have a basic understanding of it. And like I said, for kids, I think it's just a great, it's, it's another artistic outlet. So not everybody is going to learn to play the piano, uh, but everybody can learn a little bit about music. And I kind of feel like that's similar to, to coding, that it's good if everybody has a little chance to, to try it and see if it's something that they might enjoy. Yeah, definitely. See if they have that spark. Um, Code.org is one of the places I was thinking of called An Hour of Code. If you oh, haven't yeah. seen that, those have some real encouraging videos um, that you can share with, with kids and with adults that just talk about the opportunities. And, and, of course, the kids love seeing some of the cool work environments that coders have in some of these top um, companies. So, you know, with the ping pong tables and free food, and <laughs> sure, they, sure. They're, always, they're always tickled to see that. But I think they, they just really... Um, um, once they give coding a chance, they, it's really uh, something that a lot of kids find very enjoyable. Given your experience with the Coco, which is, you know, we, the Coco was out 30-something years ago, and looking at how computers have changed over that time and, and your use of the scratch language now, how do you think the Coco contributed to your understanding of programming? And do you think that there's something about programming and basic on the Coco that we are missing in the simplicity of programming these days? Well, I think the COCO, again, by, by adding those artistic, adding artistic language into what, you know, what the basic words were instead of just get and put and, you know, things that, that uh, may not... Peek and poke, right? Yeah, yeah. It may not trigger a lot of positive attitudes in people, you know. Like I said, it was, it was when I first saw those words that I thought, uh, yeah, this this is going to be fun. And I think that uh, that's kind of what the COCO did. Before then, to me, it looked like all machine programming, and it just didn't look like it was going to be fun or, or that I would be able to kind of do it my own way. It sounded like it was something that would be done one way. You know, you use these certain terms, and you, these, you have to introduce certain things, of course, in certain order, and you have mm -hmm. to learn that kind of thing, the protocol. But I think once I saw that there were artistic words in the language, um, I thought, okay, this this appeals to me, and and I think I can I can really do a lot with this. And I think that that uh, some of the programming languages today, well, like the Scratch for Kids, you know, that's doing the same thing. It's got really cool. One of the little blocks that you can drag over is do a special effect on on a graphic. And so you can say, okay, on this graphic, just by clicking on the little triangle and doing a drop-down menu, you can say, I want to pixelate this graphic, I want to swirl this graphic, I want to 
change the color of this graphic. I want to grow this graphic, shrink this graphic. You can make all these changes and put it in a little loop and just do some cool things just right off the bat. So I think that's kept some of the fun that the Coco had when it introduced things like sound and paint and circle and all those those uh, fun fun terms that it introduced into the language. I think some of that's still here and, and that that's why kids are finding it intriguing and, and fun. It's definitely been cool talking to you, Becky. Um, I wonder, is, is there anything that um, occurs to you that we haven't asked that, uh, that maybe we should have? Oh, I haven't a clue what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun talking with you guys, too, and it was fun kind of uh, going back and, and thinking about these things again, too. Well, nice to meet you guys, and uh, I'll see you on the Facebook page probably. <laughs> Thanks again, Becky. Great. It's Thanks, great Becky. to have you. Thank All you. Right. This is great. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Since 1994, Cloud9 has made cool stuff for your color computer. Now Cloud9 is proud to announce the 2-megabyte Triad Plus memory expansion board. The Triad Plus works in two ways. Purchase just the Triad Plus board to expand your color computer 3 from 128K to 512K of RAM. Or add the new Protector Plus MMU to access the full 2 megabytes of static RAM aboard the Triad Plus. And the Protector Plus MMU utilizes full buffering to protect your CPU. Unlike previous 2 megabyte memory expansions for the Coco 3, the Triad Plus operates seamlessly without the need for special patches, configuration, or workarounds. Games like Donkey Kong Remix and Sierra Adventure games simply work without hassle. And the Triad Plus will reduce your Coco's power consumption and heat generation. The Triad Plus and Protector Plus MMU, only from the innovative engineering of Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. What a gorgeous night. Harvey, I called the exterminator for you. Exterminator? Yeah, I heard you telling your friends that your TRS-80 has mice. Mice? No, no, no. I was talking about the mice, the M1SE from Bartlett Labs. So there's no mice? No, it's the Model 1 System Expander. It adds all kinds of great new capabilities to your TRS-80. That's a relief. It lets you connect an SVGA monitor, Ethernet, a joystick. All my programs can fit on a compact flash drive. I'll call and cancel the exterminator. Hold on a second, Madge. Don't cancel. I think we might have owls. The Model 1 System Expander from Bartlett Labs. Get more information at bartlettlabs.com. Welcome, Coco Cruisers. This is John, and if you are at all a regular listener to this podcast, then uh, I'm sure you expect at this time of the show to be a tech segment. I've often commented that it can be a little difficult to think of worthwhile tech segments, and I hope I've usually done so, but I do admit a few of them have been not exactly terrible, but maybe a little bit phoned in, or maybe the topics weren't super in-depth or whatever. Got a couple of ribbings about last month's XXD topic, which I think is a cool tool, but I don't know, maybe it's not widely applicable. Anyway, point being, thinking of these tech segment ideas can be difficult to come up with something that's interesting enough to talk about and accessible enough that that I can prepare the talk or at least somewhat wing it or whatever. I know some people enjoy these talks. I think some people skip them. That's fine. Here we are, episode 48. We've been doing this for four years. Uh, I think... um, May have missed one or two of these talks. One was at least one was a guest talk from uh, I think Tim Lindner. May have missed another one. I'm not sure. 
Sometimes these can be a, a, um, a chore, shall we say. I think we're going to sort of demote this segment uh, from being a, a regular segment every month uh, to being more of a feature segment. And so they're not going away. They'll still be tech segments. Hopefully they'll still be quite often. Uh, but what I want is for them to be um, more inspired, shall we say, tech segments when there's something really to talk about and not just because, well, it's that time of the month to make another part of the show or whatever. If you if it really bothers you, please do send some feedback. Or if you've enjoyed the tech segments and want to see them keep coming, I'd love to see some feedback to that effect as well. So just wanted you to be prepared. Next month there may or may not be a tech segment, and the month after that as well, so on and so on. Obviously, we do have a tech segment this month, so what are we talking about? As you know, it's kind of an ongoing thing. Um, DeCoco has a cousin or a little brother or whatever called the MC-10. I'm not sure what any of the <laughs> microcomputer 10. I don't know what the 10 comes from. Anyway... It's um, a microcolor computer. It's a, a little box, um, similar in some ways. Uh, it runs a version of Color Basic. It uses the same video chip as the Coco. So it has a very familiar feel to it. But it does use a different processor. Judging by some of the technical decisions made on the MC-10, pretty clearly that they were mostly worried about it running basic didn't care a whole lot about it running other stuff um there are some machine language programs available through radio shack to uh, it didn't exactly take over the world um nevertheless it is possible to program the mc10 in assembly language obviously it's not even all that hard the the mc10 gets a, a lot of bad publicity or bad rap or whatever it's kind of blamed for the death of the Deluxe Coco, which I think history does not actually support in any meaningful way. But it gets a lot of ribbing. People say, say it's done nothing but a doorstop or that it, you know, it supports windows, as in if you've got a window that won't stay open, you can put an MC-10 up under it. Ha, ha, ha. It's kind of much maligned, and I don't think it deserves it. Um, sure, it's a compact machine. The keyboard is not great there are worse keyboards out there certainly on some of his competitors the keyboards were just plain membranes which were maybe are great if you spill a coke on them but other than that they're terrible i would even say the uh, the plastic keys on the mc10 are better than the rubber keys on the zx spectrum because you don't have that same zombie dead flesh feeling when you type on them all right okay enough evangelizing for the mc10 um <laughs> My point being is, um, you know, the machine itself may not be as great. Certainly didn't have the same line of peripherals or whatever. It still is a cool machine. You can, the processor is actually no slouch. It's not, not as nice as the 6809, but it's not all that bad. Performance-wise, it's actually pretty good. We're going to talk take the rest of this tech segment and talk about the differences in a, when from an assembly language point of view. Some of the differences programming assembly language for the the, uh, the MC-10 versus for the COCO, or specifically for the 6803 on the MC-10 versus the 6809, which of course is on the COCO. So, there you go. The MC-10 uses the uh, Motorola 6803. Um, just to confuse things a little bit, the 6803 is actually a ROM-less version of the 6801. 
so the 6801 was an enhanced, um, basically, a, well, a microcontroller enhancement to the um, Motorola 6800. The 6801 had a masked ROM, and so you would um, burn your program, well, have your program burnt at manufacturing time, and it would uh, immediately boot up and run that. Uh, in addition to the ROM feature, um, uh, it had some built-in peripherals that makes it a microcontroller versus just a microprocessor, so it includes timers, serial ports, a couple other things. Feel free to do your own research. <laughs> Uh, there also was a 68701, which was essentially the same as the 6801, but instead of a mass drum, you know, one burnt at uh, manufacturing time. I say burnt, but grown or have, you know, manufactured <laughs> at manufacturing time. Uh, the 68701 had an EEPROM for that, so it's essentially the same as 6801. Sort of it was designed basically for prototyping. Um, well, anyway, the 6803 is a ROMless version of the 6801, so it has the microcontroller features. It does not boot up out of ROM. It needs external EEPROM or, or whatever to be able to run. None of that is overly meaningful, but <laughs> just to cover the bases. The processor architecture for the 6801 is uh, derived from the older Motorola 6800, which, of course, the 6809 was also derived from the older 6800. Um, but whereas the 6809 um, went with a fallback to a source code compatibility where, you know, at least there's some instruction or two that you can uh, replace for any missing instructions, <laughs> any 6800 instructions that aren't on the 6809, the uh, 6801 uh, is actually 100% backwards binary compatible, which means if you have a binary that runs on it's the 6800. At least that set of instructions will run without change on the 6801. Now, the only caveat there might be there's a, a little bit of a dressing difference there. The, you know, on the 6800, you've got a, the zero page, which is a, a way to have some faster access to, to 256 bytes of RAM. Some of those zero, the first 32 zero page addresses on the 6801 are dedicated to the onboard registers for controlling the, the onboard peripherals. So if you have a 6800 instruction that uses those 32 bytes for its internal programming uses, um, they can, and they conflict uh, with the, um, the registers on the 6801, then that won't necessarily work correctly. So, you know, a little bit of grain of salt, but yeah, but Otherwise, the 6801 is 100% backward binary compatible with the 6800. Uh, difference worth mentioning is uh, the top 128, so from 128 to 256 of uh, addresses uh, of um, 6801 or 6803, uh, in this case, are onboard RAM. Uh, there are some added instructions for the 6801 or 6803. There's a load and stores of the D register. You can do adds on the whole D register, subtract on the whole D register, and you can also do the uh, ASL, D, and LSRD, so shifts across the entire D register, which, of course, D register is, is concatenation of A register and B register. On the 6809, you don't have the, the shifting for D. You have to do... A, a broken, you know, shift on um, B and then rotate into A or, or vice versa. So it can be handy. Uh, it's worth knowing. 
In terms of differences from the 6800, the 6801 also includes a push X and pull X instruction. So that's for storing and retrieving the X, the value of the X register uh, on the stack. I'm not really sure how the 6800 gets around that, um, but uh, I'm sure there's probably some canonical way. Well, I'm sure you you probably just have to have a dedicated, uh, probably in the zero page, a dedicated uh, location for storing that. I don't know, it just seems a little awkward, but hey, you know, it's the early days. Uh, it also adds uh, the ABX instruction, which is, you know, literally add B to X. So if you have an offset in the B register and then want to add it to the X register, perfect instruction for that. If you're a 6809 programmer, you may be thinking, well, why do I need that? Why? <laughs> um, we'll get to it a little later, but um, basically because the, the fancy indexing modes that the 6809 has don't exist in either the 6800 or the 6801, 6803, whatever. So it's a little bit, it's sort of an in-between step. <laughs> also, the, um, the 6801, 6803 architecture does add a multiply instruction, hardware multiplier. So that's kind of handy if you need to do much multiplication. So the 6801 slash 6803, which is, again, this is the MC10. The MC10 is a 6803. The 6203 essentially is a 6801, so that's why I use both terms in interchangeably. I guess you probably won't be able to get a 6801 these days with any new code on it. <laughs> anyway, since it was a math ROM, you might be able to find a 68701 somewhere. So, I don't know, maybe I should say 6803. Either way. Whichever one I say, that's what I mean. <laughs> okay, so, so the 6803, shall we say, is, is similar to the 6809. Uh, they even share a number of the same opcodes, which I thought was kind of interesting from uh, looking at an assembler. I think I originally noted that when we talked about the F9 DASM disassembler. It handles both 6809 and 6800 and 6801. Probably because the, those opcodes are, you know, identical between. So many of them are identical. Uh, of course, there's plenty of them that are different, especially with the 6809. From an assembly programmer's point of view, the 6803 is somewhat similar to 6809 until you start peeling some stuff away. So right off the top, there's no Y register. There's an X register, but no Y register. There is no direct page register, which is not something you manipulate a lot on the 6809, but a lot, of, a lot of times you'll set it at least once in a program. So effectively, the 6803, the direct page value is just fixed to zero, so it's essentially a zero page. More similar to, say, the 6502 in that case than, than the 6809. At least you have the advantage that, unlike the 6502, well, which, where did that come from? Well... <laughs> It's hard not to mention 6502 sometimes when discussing retro computers. The 6502 not only has a frozen zero page for its direct page style of access, it also has stack frozen to the the one page. The 6800, 6801, all of them uh, at least have a 16-bit stack register, which you can move pretty much anywhere. So at least you're not frozen to um, a 256 bytes of stack. But that's my little... Um, a side dig at the, the 6502 world, so you can just uh, ignore that and move on. But, but again, the direct, there is no direct page register on 6803 or 6801. Uh, it is effectively a zero page. 
There's also no U register, so that's one of the features of the 6809. There's a second stack, there's the S stack, and of course also the U stack or user stack. There's not, there is no U on um, no U register on the 6803. Consequently, there's also no push U or pull U instructions. There's no point in having an instruction for accessing a registry that you don't have. Notably, also. Um, just like there's no push U or pull U, there's also no push S or pull S. Instead, you have individual instructions mapped to each of the registers. So instead of you doing a push S or, or uh, you'd have a um, push A uh, or push B or push X, and those are the only registers you can push on the stack. So unlike the 6809, which has a generic instruction, uh, that then has a bitmap of what you're pushing or pulling. You have to have the specific instructions for your registers, and also means you can't pull any cool tricks like a a pull list uh, that includes the PC and then avoid the RTS instruction. You'll have to do whatever stack cleanup you want with your pull A, pull B, whatever, and then you'll actually need the RTS instruction as well. So they kind of hints at this here, but also. Um, no Y register, no U register. Uh, also, the S and PC registers are not available for use as index registers. Like on the, the 6809 can basically do a comma whatever for, for indexing and do a lot of cool stuff that way. Those are not available. Uh, so any kind of PC relative stuff or whatever, other than branching, there's no PC relative addressing uh, so if you want to do anything like that, you have to get fancy <laughs> and end up manipulating the X register. The only indexed addressing mode available on the 6801 or 6803 uh, is one that gives you an 8-bit offset from the X register, and that's it. You can't do it off a Y register or S register or PC, anything like that. Um, certainly not off of you since it doesn't exist. There's no pre-increment or post-decrement post pre whichever order I've got that I think I got that wrong anyway it doesn't exist on the 6801 or 6803 so you can't do any of that uh, handy um, automatic manipulation of the index register also there is no um, no automatic incrementing or decrementing there is of course the um, there is an instructions for uh, incrementing and decrementing INX and DEX or INX index so, you know, if you want the address to change, you have to put in the instructions yourself to do it. Uh, so, also, similarly, there is no set of LEA instructions. You know, like I said, most of the registers that could use an LEA instruction, like Y or U or S. Well, S is there, but <laughs> can't be used as an index register. <clears throat> y and U don't exist. And even X, there's no LEA X instruction. So all that fancy indexing just doesn't exist. Any kind of indexing that you want to do that would be fancy, um, you'll have to actually manipulate the X register. Like I said, you have inks index. You, know, you can load and store the X register. There's the ABX instruction. You can transfer the um, the stack register over to, to the X register and vice versa. So that can be handy for doing some manipulations that are based off the stack, don't you have to do all the math yourself, basically. <laughs> Let's see, similar to, to um, the push and pull instructions, the, the, what was the, the 
transfer or exchange instructions on the CCA-9 are replaced by a set of individual instructions for each transfer. So you have um, TAB and TBA, so there's transfer A to B, transfer B to A, and transfer, there's TXS and TSX, so you can transfer between the X and S registers. There's TAP and TPA, uh, which transfer the processor status word. Uh, you're tempted to think maybe that's a PC, but it's not. It's, a, it's more like the condition code register. So anyway, you can get those transferred back and forth with those specific instructions. And then also, in sort of in the same vein, whereas the 6809 has the AND CC and OR CC instructions that can manipulate multiple bits at a time, um, you have um, clear, carry, set, carry, clear, set, clear overflow, set overflow. Like I said, you can do the, the transfer A to P and transfer P to A if you need to do um, fancier manipulations, I guess. But the biggest carry away here in terms of differences with programming on the CC809, I'd say the most notable thing is just you're going to have to manipulate addresses a whole lot. And you've only got the 1X register, you know, not even a Y register. So if you even like a copy and data, a block of data like a mem copy, it's going to be a whole lot of um, pushing and popping uh, of the X register, saving it between source and destination and whatever. A whole lot of that kind of manipulation. Any kind of indexing or whatever, you have to do it manually. You know, it gets a little ugly, but I mean, it's kind of wholesome and pure. <laughs> you can wipe the sweat from your brow and feel like you've really done something. Um, you know, you may have to understand things a little bit better to use the 6801 or 6803. So you might think that having these extra instructions for doing all that stuff would somehow would impact their performance. And to the extent that they're truly extra, I'm sure you know that does impact the performance. But keep in mind that those fancy index modes weren't entirely free. I mean, you still have those operations still have to occur. You still have to move through the ALU inside the CPU or whatever. Uh, the fact that you have to code up, hard code the the actual instructions for the operations, it has something because you still have to load those instructions and decode them. But the operations themselves sort of had to occur anyway for those various indexing modes, so you may not lose all that much. From a performance standpoint, I remember feeling like when I did Xmas Rush for the MC10, I remember feeling like the, instru- the um, performance wasn't all that much different from the Cocoa version processor in the mc10 is is no slouch i mean it's probably it's not as good as 6809 but it's not all that bad and it, you know at least it's not a 6502 thank god <laughs> uh let's see one more mention there for for the um for the the machine language versus assembly language crowd <laughs> um one huge difference that uh, that uh, you'll see is since there is no um Doing that fancy indexed addressing, you don't have the need for the the various kinds of post bytes um, that are part of the 6809 machine language encodings. So there's a difference if you if you really are uh, sweating it out and, and typing in the um, hex codes rather than uh, using a assembler like a sane person, um, then <laughs> you'll have to uh, you won't have to to come up with the um, the post bytes when you're coding for the 6803. So there's something, huh? (laughs) 
Well, like I said, I think the MC-10 gets a short shrift in some parts of the Cocoa Media, uh, become kind of a stale old joke uh, with some people. The machine itself, well, it's not a Cocoa, and it doesn't have the full range of Cocoa stuff. But, you know, it does feel a lot like a Cocoa. That's why we call it a cousin or a little brother or whatever. It can be, you know, while it does have some odd design choices, it is a fun machine to play with. And it's a lot more portable than a Cocoa, so you can throw it in your um, backpack and take it with you on vacation or something, uh, as long as you have some place to display. <laughs> so I, I definitely think it deserves some of your love, and um, there should be no guilt uh, in in uh, playing with the MC-10. I am working. Uh, I have been working on a set of tools relative to the MC-10. It's part of the overall. Um, basic compiler project that uh, I talked about some about this time last year. Recently gotten a little bit more into that and uh, I've been enjoying that. So FYI, I may have um, more topics similar or related to this to discuss. So hopefully there will be uh, some more (laughs) tech segments. I'm sure there will be when they may or may not relate to the MC-10. Who knows? Uh, if you've been a fan of the tech segments over the past four years, again, I thank you for listening, and I hope you've learned something. If you've enjoyed them, I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know. Uh, if you'd like to beg me to keep doing them, <laughs> um, stroke my ego with telling me what a great uh, uh, part of the show this has been, well, I'd certainly be happy to read those as well. I'm going to draw this to conclusion, so thanks for listening. See you next time, whenever that may be. Uh, happy cocoing and, uh, you know, cocoa forever. Have you heard of the Fred hard drive emulator for the TRS-80? Huh, yeah, spelled kind of funny, ain't it? With the Fred, you can store your entire library of TRS-80 software on a single SD card. No way. I just finished sorting all of these floppy disks. It's beautiful. Programs that run slowly from floppy disk run lightning fast with the Fred. Listen, pal, I have lots of free time, and keeping my floppy disks organized is kind of my hobby. The Fred also includes a battery-backed real-time clock. If you can't affix gum labels to it, I ain't interested. For information and pricing, contact Ian Maverick via email, iam at trs-80.com. Hey, do you know where I can find some more of those big plastic disk storage cases? This month in Cocoa History. Welcome to This Month in Cocoa History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we go back 32 years to an expensive yet sexy upgrade for the Color Computer 3. The May 1987 issue of the Rainbow Magazine featured a tantalizing new product. The Discmaster from Hemp Hill Electronics debuted on page 15 of that month's issue, touting the hard drive and floppy combo as, quote, the ultimate disk drive systems for the OS9-based Cocoa 3, bar none, end quote. The impressive ad featured a photo of the Disk Master unit in an attractive black case with a 3.5-inch SCSI hard drive mounted atop a 5.25-inch high-density floppy drive. A power switch was set conveniently on the top. This system claimed DMA transfer of data from the floppy disk as well as reading and writing of a number of specialized OS9 disk formats including Standard, Fujitsu, and Mizar. The price for the floppy and 20 megabyte hard drive combo was an astounding $1,295, with a cheaper floppy only option for $795. Ironically, the storage options that can be had for the Coco today are not only significantly cheaper, but have orders of magnitude larger capacities. And that's this month in 
Welcome back to Neil's Corner on episode 48 of the Coco Crew Podcast, the podcast that is often imitated but never duplicated. This segment will be dedicated to a new Color Computer 3 game I got the pleasure to help produce. In case you missed its debut at Coco Fest a few weeks ago, the game is called Night Lore. This game comes on ROM cartridge media and requires a Coco 3 with 128K. It supports keyboard, joystick, and even Sega gamepad. There is an option on the main menu to select that. It was a joint effort to bring you this game. Mark McDougall handled all the coding, I handled all production in producing the carts, and Amy Grimwood created the sticker label and manual graphic design. Well, I was going to do a review of this game myself, but I figured, wait, wouldn't it be best to get a review from the actual coder himself? So I reached out to Mark to see if he'd be interested, and sure enough, he was on board. So here you have it, fellow Coco Cruisers. I am proud to announce Mark McDougall. Take it away, Mark. Night Law is a new game for the Coco 3. I describe it as an isometric platform puzzler that has you searching a castle for select items in order to lift a curse placed on you before time runs out. But although it has only recently been released on the Coco 3, it certainly isn't a new game. Originally released in 1984 for the ZX Spectrum microcomputer, it was written by the Stamper Brothers, who went on to found the hugely successful game development company Rare that was eventually acquired by Microsoft for some obscene amount of money, and rumoured to be even more than John or Neil's Coco Crew salary. Night Law was a smash hit for the ZX Spectrum, and is regarded as one of the seminal titles for the platform. The isometric graphics were technically advanced for the time, and the gameplay, whilst a little sluggish at times, is exemplary. Whilst the room renderings are essentially monochrome, due to the infamous colour clash limitation of the spectrum, they are nonetheless expertly animated and visually impressive, to say the least. And it's for this reason I decided that Night Law deserved to be brought to the Coco 3. I'll leave the details to another discussion, but suffice it to say that the Coco version is a direct transcoding from the original Z80 disassembly. Think Sockmaster's Donkey Kong or Glenn Hewlett's Pac-Man. This is an exact replica of the original code with the graphics ripped pixel for pixel from the Spectrum binary. The only differences are the main menu, some palette limitations that don't affect gameplay, and the keys used to control the game. The speed of the game is very close to the original, and in fact actually suffers slightly less slowdown when things get really busy. The isometric view in Night Law presents a single 16 by 16 grid castle room on the display, which may have up to four doors in the centre of each of the north, south, east and west walls, which lead to or from adjacent rooms. The player, Saberman, walks or jumps smoothly around the castle room, interacting with inanimate objects like blocks and tables and spiky balls, and generally fatal castle inhabitants such as guards, ghosts, bouncing balls, etc. Some objects are fixed and can act as obstacles, others move by themselves or can be moved by Saberman. Saberman can also jump onto objects to reach higher points in the room. Indeed, a large part of the puzzle aspect is working out exactly how to travel from one door to another and often whilst avoiding death. At the bottom left and right of the screen are indicators for the number of lives, objects carried, day and time of day, the latter being represented with a scrolling sun or moon. These indicators on the spectrum at least had a little colour, unfortunately not on the Coco implementation for reasons I won't go into here. 
The object of the game is to collect, one by one, certain objects strewn around the castle and return them to the wizard's cauldron in order to create the potion to lift your curse. Saberman can pick up items but carry only a few items at any one time, dropping the first item picked up should he attempt to carry too many. After adding each object to the cauldron, it will reveal which object to collect next. Moving from room to room is achieved via flip-style animation, where upon leaving one room, the screen is cleared and the next room is rendered, Saberman thus appearing on the opposite side of the screen entering the room. The castle map is static and contains 128 rooms, however each game's starting point varies randomly between a few select rooms. Far from being a limitation though, I'd humbly suggest that winning the game within the time limit is only possible after memorising sections of the castle. Saberman has 40 days and nights to collect all the objects and complete the potion. Each night, however, Saberman transforms into Saber Wolf, which actually changes the behaviour of certain aspects of the game. No spoilers here. And in itself is key for solving certain puzzles. Days and nights pass pretty quickly, so it's certainly not a case of being able to roam idly around the castle to get your bearings or ponder puzzles for too long. Make no mistake, this is a difficult game. Aside from the none too generous time limit, expansive map and random nature of the objects, you have the customary 8-bit pixel jumps to contend with, though they're nowhere near as unforgiving as some games as well as sometimes partially hidden objects, but overall, with a bit of practice, you won't feel the game is unjust. The puzzle aspects will keep you interested, the action aspects keep you honing your skills, and the beauty of the graphics keep you wanting to play again just to admire them. In my personal opinion, this is one of the most impressive games on any 8-bit computer, and one I therefore believe worthy of a cartridge release. Such was the success of Night Law that the Stamper Brothers went on to produce a further two titles for the Spectrum using the same engine, the next being the space-themed Alienate before returning to the medieval magic theme in Pentagram, where they slightly tweaked the engine to add the ability for the player to shoot. The game was also ported to a number of different platforms, some enhancing the graphics and colours, and has even seen modern remakes. Finally, of course, this is not my IP. So, why are you being asked to pay for it? The simple answer is, you are not paying for the game development. You are not paying for the IP. You are paying for the media and the preparation of that media that allows you to experience this game on the Coco. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Well, I hope you enjoyed Mark's review of Nightlore. This game is available to purchase on ROM cartridge for your Coco 3. It's a professional package coming complete with box and manual. I also want to announce we will be releasing a floppy disk version of this game at a reduced price. If you are interested in this game, please reach out to me. My email address is neil at cococrew.org. Thank you for listening, and until next month, happy Coco Gaming. Speed Racer from Mistron. Speed Racer is a supercar race game that puts you behind the wheel with incredible scrolling 3D graphics. It's simply the finest car race game ever written for the Coco. Just $34.95, disc or tape, 32K required. From Mistron. Well, it's that time again. We have reached the end of episode 48. My goodness, we are already near a month into the Coco New Year. As usual, I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for procuring interesting news articles each month. 
and still providing to bring us fantastic tech segments, such as this past one describing 6803 versus 6809 assembly differences. I'd also like to thank Mike Rowan for creating those awesome commercials and painstakingly editing this podcast each month. I'd also like to thank Boise Pete and Ron Klein for being full-time part of this podcast now. Big thanks goes out to Becky Fox Matthews for lending us some of your time to record an interview with you. Last but not least, I'd like to thank all of you who listen and support us each month. We also really like hearing from you and appreciate your feedback. Well, until next month, Coco and Retro Forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. There's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance. Let's go.